cool. So we could just like go ahead and jump on in. So it's like yeah. super stoked we all got to connect again. I'm going to be doing most of the talking here. Ryan Fick, our lovely producer with newly added mustache to the face, which I'm very mm -hmm. happy about is going to be behind the camera and the boards, making sure everything goes well. And then I'm joined by David and Jessica. So you, I'm, I usually give intros on people, but I realize it's so much better to let people do that themselves. So why don't you guys just give me a little rundown? Give me a little, give me a little what's up about who you guys are, you know? Sure. You want to go first? <laughs> uh, sure. Yeah. Uh, my name is Jessica. I am an animator. I have been animating for over eight years now, close to 10 years. I wow. have both worked in TV, film, and most recently as an Imagineer at Walt Disney Imagineering on the uh, animatronics for the rides. And now that's I'm so just recently back in feature and that's about it. How about you? It's about uh, it. My name is. <laughs> it's about it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the end. Uh, my name is David Badro, and uh, I am also an animator. I've I've been working in animation in various ways for a little for over ten years now, I think, and mm. um, uh, in television and in features. Uh, primarily and I've held a number of jobs from layout to art to mostly animation now yeah. and uh, and have jumped around to a variety of different studios and whatnot and and lived in different cities for that so it's Jess and um, so yeah and yeah and like and I, and I think you guys have a really fascinating portfolio and like something that I always love to talk to people about when most of the time when I meet people who are full-time especially in animation they send, they tend to go wherever the passion leads them. Like when I, when I talked to Mike from, you know, who's from DNA and from Nickelodeon, it's like, he's been in Dallas and California and Cincinnati. And I feel like it kind of adds this nomadic quality when you're doing something like animation. So mm -hmm. what's your guys' thoughts on that? Like, I mean, you guys really have, you're in California now. I mean, and you've been a bit all over the map. Do you guys go wherever the job is or is it like the passion leads you somewhere? Do you have something in mind? I mean, you're in like the hub of where your industry is right now. What's your thoughts behind, behind that? I think we actually have two different thoughts on that. Um, yeah. uh, but it just happened to bring us together. Uh, from mm. my perspective, uh, I would always like to be in a, when I first started out, I wanted to be in a stable position. So I was quite uh, solid in where I was in Vancouver, but my perspective changed when I wanted to follow what made me happy. And sometimes that would lead me to a certain position or it would lead me to a certain location. So I often yeah. follow um, where I know my life will be in a good balance. And sometimes that means I might settle down for a while. And sometimes that might mean I'll be jumping around a little bit. And I think some people at the beginning of their careers really want to pursue certain studios, certain directors, um, and sometimes specifically certain cities. But for yeah. me, it's always just been where I happen to follow my happiness. And that just has happened to lead me to a few different cities. But I think you kind of- And that's the idea though. I mean, to touch on a bit more before David shares his thoughts on it, I just think that's, I think that's like the way it should be, but it's so hard to actually marinate in that lifestyle. Like for me, Ryan and I both are kind of that way. It's like, mm -hmm. there's something delicious about the ambiguity of being creative. It's like, 
I don't know where I'm going to be in a year, but I know where I am right now and I'm loving it. And like, it's the reward outweighs the risk and very few jobs can do that, but it is a strange landscape. So I'm happy that you've managed to figure that out. I mean, it's was taken it always a while, but away? I feel like a lot of people coming out of school or out of high school, whatever it is, when they want to pursue arts, it's often difficult for them to like go fully gung-ho with passion pursuit because usually to appreciate that balance and that desire for such things, you have to know what it's like to do corporate bullshit and then just do a job where your creative freedom's a bit sacrificed. So dude, stokes for that. Um, total kudos for that. I'm stoked that you're able to do that. And then David, you, you guys have two different mindsets on it? Like how did I your- mean, probably, slightly. probably slightly different, but I would say mostly the same. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, uh, well, it's funny also that you say that, uh, you know, yeah, like we're kind of in the hub of it here in LA, but, uh, I think that that for when you're on more of the, we're sort of more on the production side of things, meaning specifically we are sort of, um, in the trenches, like we're the people that actually make the, make the images as opposed to writers and directors and whatnot, where I would say when you're on that side of thing, which some people call front end, um, LA is more of a center for that, where Mm -hmm. a lot of the major production and writing and directing, I shouldn't, I'm confusing the term production here, so I apologize, but um, the the, sort of like the more, you know, uh, ground zero genesis, you know, creation part of it happens here in LA, whereas, you know, animators and the, the rest of the production pipeline um, used to be mostly in LA, but like over the last 10 years, it's sort of become decentralized. Mm. And so it's really been spread out across the, not only all of America, but around the world. Especially so, with animation, right? Like I know there's, a, I mean, it's mm-hmm. a lot of the times we have storyboarding happening in house in, in the States, and then we see things get rendered like overseas, even like in Japan and things of that nature. And I find oh, yeah. that fascinating. And I think, and again, the way we do this, I don't really have much of a format. So when it pops in my head, I will bring it up. I think mm-hmm. I think COVID-19, we talk about the hub of what LA is, and especially with the production process, COVID-19 has really rewritten the rules. And to speak on like, again, you started your career at, at South Park, David, and mm-hmm. they did something super unique during this pandemic era of like, making a full on like, hour run episode completely remote from home. And I just think it's just, we're really changing the landscapes of how that works. And I, the way I would, I would love to just like go through the timeline and we can, both of you can interject. You know, you said you've done dual interviews before. I haven't, this is a new thing. I don't think Ryan has either. And you guys can kind of talk about where you were at as we go through these timelines, but I would love to just know how in the hell you got to start at South Park Studios. Cause that, mm-hmm. especially on season 12, like they were well into it. I mean, that's, oh, yeah. That's pretty impressive. And I've been a South Park fan. Ryan's been a South Park fan for years. I mean, Jessica, I'm sure you've been a South Park fan. I mean, it's wild, right? So it's just like, how and how did you get to start at South Park? And then while we mm-hmm. while we go through these timelines, I want to know what Jessica was doing as well. Because, I, you know, we're talking to both of you guys. So we can mm-hmm. both. I want to know, especially when we get to Disney, because that fascinates me. That used to be like my dream job when I was a kid. It, so. it was my dream job <laughs> yeah so yeah. yeah we can go through that timeline kind of organically and uh sure. uh, you know and, and figure it out so like how did you end up getting a start per se at south park, at south park. <laughs> yeah that that has a bit of a funny i i mentioned to you before the interview that south park has a a wealth of interesting stories that come from that yeah. place from the people that work there. 
Sure, any of them, man. And, I, I and really, no there's, there's almost no aspect of production that isn't a little strange at uh, South Park. And including the process of how they hire people. And uh, really? I don't know if they do this so much anymore, but this used to be the way they did it. And it was they were sort of infamous for this. Um, so uh, I, I, I like to say that I almost accidentally got the job at South Park because it was a thing where um, there's a website called Creative Heads that is still active, actually, where people who work in animation and whatnot can go on there. And it's like a big job board. And I had a, I had like a profile on there. And one day uh, I was just clicking through creative heads and I saw, it was like South Park is looking for artists. And um, I was like, interesting. I wonder what is required of that. And so I clicked on it just to see what the requirements were. Yeah. And I didn't know that by clicking on it to read more, I applied to the job. <laughs> they lure you in. They lure you in. It's hilarious. Yeah, it automatically sent my information to them. And so I just sort of read through the requirements. And I'm like, that's really interesting, huh? And um, especially because another friend of mine had already worked there. And uh, so I was like, oh, uh, interesting. Like, we both went where to are they? Where is South Park Studios based out of? Is they are They're in Marina Del Rey, California. California. So yeah. that's like uh, just around Culver City, uh, sort oh. of like on the west side. The Burbs. Yeah. I know that area. I know that area very yeah. well. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, they're in this big blue building that's right by the, the right by the ocean there, actually. It's a very pretty area. Yeah, it's a nice well, area. city's up and coming, too. But anyway, that's mm -hmm. not I'm not going to gloat about California driving. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so I got a call from uh, Daryl Sancton, who's the line producer there. And she said, hey, would you be interested in coming in for an interview? And uh, I went in and in the interview, they do a they actually give you like a little test, basically, using their software. And I failed the test. And so <laughs> I was like, well, that's the end of that. And yeah. I just went home. And then they called me another week later and they were like, well, uh, we would love for you to come in and be part of our trial period. They do. And this is the unique part, yeah. which is uh, they do this thing that's like uh, it's like a survivor or something where they... <laughs> Because the, the schedule at South Park is extremely rigorous and mm -hmm. it's very, very time-based. Like you have to be able to perform super fast. The six, and, isn't it called like six days to air or something of that nature? I want to get into that too. Like I really want to know yeah. how accurate all that is and how that works. But Yeah, uh, absolutely. And so uh, what they do is there's one position. They have one position available and they hire three people for the trial period and they pay you. Like, uh, like an employee during those two weeks, but they nice. put you through a series of tests <laughs> and they, they give you all sorts of like um, assignments that you would get as if you were on the show. And they, they're basically timing you to see like how fast do all three of you do it? Um, how, how accurate do you do it? How, how clean um, they, they pull you into sort of mini interviews and ask you specific questions. They even test your knowledge of the show because knowing the show helps uh, be able to do the show faster because you can pull references or assets or anything from any of the other episodes. There's a lot of reuse. So yeah, um, that's efficient as hell. I just wonder like, yeah. it's crazy like how crunched that is. And like, yeah, I I'm surprised they haven't made that a show in of itself. I know they like capitalize on the documentary opportunity to like, they have arguably the most unique production turnaround in they, the business right now? 
I, I think... Well, they, it's funny, like, so Frank, Frank Agoni, who's the executive producer, he, when I went in for my, after, after I, I won, I ended up winning that little contest. <laughs> and um, exactly. after I got the job, uh, I had a little mini meeting with Frank and he, I think, said it best. He said, um, he said, we are yeah, the only player. animation uh, studio in the world that operates like Saturday Night Live, basically. Huh. Where we put together a show in about five days, and then the the full production thing is, is a six day schedule. And uh, yeah, he says where we come up with the episode, we create it, we put it on the air within a week. It's it's the closest thing to an SNL production. It is, and I, but I even think it exceeds in a way because the fact that you still have to render animation and yeah. <laughs> and have it, and like and it does look good. Like that's what's crazy to me is like. Even when it didn't quote unquote look good in the first two seasons, it's still yeah. charming and I loved the way it looked. So it's yeah. funny that they South Park has like this model that can get away with being so incredibly fast. And I mean, what was, and when you were doing this, did you ever have a moment where you're like, I, I don't know if I want to do this full time or were you just <laughs> don't be able to do this for South Park? Were you in the moment? Because for me, I'd almost be like, do I really want to commit to a full time <laughs> six days to air type timeline? Yeah. It's a very I, unique schedule. Yeah. For me, so I when I got that job, I was 25. And wow. I was fresh out of grad school. And so for me, it was a two-part thing. And what on one side, I was really, really excited to just be in, in broadcast. Like I, it was my first job doing anything that was in the broadcast realm. Mm -hmm. And so I was like extremely excited. And I was like, yeah, this is great. And I, I sort of really um was hungry to do that schedule i i thought that i was the, the uniqueness of that schedule and the show made me more excited to work on the show i was like oh my gosh we're really gonna do that and yeah. i wanted to see something that ridiculous in person yeah. um and it's funny though because i would ask people that had some people had worked there for like 10 years at that point mm -hmm. and i would ask them i was like wow like how do you feel about this schedule? You know, um, I said, like, I, I can't believe you've been doing this 10 years and you're not sick of it. And from their perspective, they were like, oh, I, I prefer it. They said, I, I like that when I'm working at South Park, uh, that's my whole life. And mm -hmm. then when I'm done, I can not work at all. And uh, yeah. yeah, they go on hiatus basically. And, they're, and people who come back year after year, they're paid like a retainer fee, like a small retainer fee to stay on basically it's like a uh, teacher it's like how they do it in education in a way with the summer breaks but a lot because mm -hmm. you guys are they, they air in the fall right like that's when yep. they air so it's like it's so i guess production is throughout it's they, they do it throughout that season and they and they air it i just think it's fascinating that no I, I, we don't know more about what made them start that i mean have they always done that is it always i, I have the answer <laughs> yeah yeah uh, the the show used to be done. They used to do it about two weeks per episode was how they used to do it. Still really, uh, fast. really fast, still way faster than any other animated show. Yeah. And then um, it just became a thing where it, it just shaved down further and further mm. the longer they worked out. And it very quickly got to that time. I think it only took about three seasons for them to hone in on it. Cause it, it was a thing where like, like, oh, well, maybe we can do an episode in 10 days. And then they're like, well, maybe we can do it in nine days and do yeah. it in eight days. 
And then eventually they hit six days and they were like, that's the, that's the limit. That's the it has to be, it has to be the ceiling. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Eric, Eric Stow, who's one of the producers who side note, he's who butters is based on, on the show. Really? Um, yeah. Um, Why? That's his personality. Eric, it, well, so Eric or um, butters, the actual name in the real show is Eric Stotch. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's like butter Stotch, like yeah. butterscotch. And, um, and so Stotch is based on Stow. And uh, when, and Matt and Trey and, and Eric all went to college together. Like Eric's the voice and, of Butters uh, as well, isn't he? No, uh, Matt is the voice of oh. Butters. But, uh, but he used to call, and, and Eric, when he was in college with them, behaved exactly like Butters, basically. Like a super duper positive, really, really like fun loving, <laughs> happy guy. And, uh, and whole, yeah, super duper wholesome. And Trey, used to call him butters like b-u-d-d-e-r-s like buddy like yeah. he's like oh he's my buddy he's my butters you know yeah. <laughs> and so they have yeah. such an enigma of a personality to me i mean it's just yeah. <laughs> insane how much they can ooze onto their product and still manage to do because i think the most crazy mind-boggling thing to me is that they still manage to do this in six days i know we're like beating the dead horse with it but it's like mm-hmm. when you i look at a lot of animation now at least on the television cycle that i really appreciate and like resonate with and they take months like as it should like it's such a difficult craft like i love watching like adventure time and like steven and even rick and morty even though i know that's like oh, yeah. made but like, I, I, they take years to really put in the ideas for adventure time or you know steven universe or whatever it is and it's like the fact that they're able to have so much nuance and such relevant jokes within six days and still have it look good you know yeah. i mean and like when it comes to this, you get the job. Like, what is your official title when you when when you join on? You know, what do they give you? Like, how does it work? What are the what are the responses? I, I you told me this before the interview, but I would love to hear you talk about the different things yeah. you're doing. Honestly. Well, just just to uh, just to finish that thought earlier, the and to what you're saying about how crazy it is that we do it in six days. Um, Eric Stow, I think, put it really well one time when he said uh, he said every week it's like we're working on trey's short film it's Mm. it's how it feels it's that it's that same sensation of like or i i mean like student film where it's like that that rigorous oh my god we're barely gonna make it in time schedule yeah (laughs) and um but but, uh and so i thought actually like how a student film is and maybe that's why it's to maintain so much authenticity throughout you know 20 plus seasons because yeah a lot of the times there's burnout i think with you go through many, many teams after about four, four to six seasons of a show. I mean, people usually just don't stay that long because of the create. I think creativity really is a spectrum where you just gotta let yourself peak and trough. And to be oh, yeah. able to have this authenticity for so long is, is really just you can't understate it. They've um, commented for the Matt, they being Matt and Trey about how they say that it for better or for worse, it's the it's the panic that brings them the good ideas. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, so yeah, I guess I, I have a few things I could talk about in that world, but, uh, yeah, lead, you go ahead and I'll, lead this dance, whatever you want to talk I'll, about, <laughs> but I'll, I'll say, yeah. So, um, my role when I was there, so they, they basically have just two sets of people that are on the floor. Um, mm-hmm. well, they have the story team, which is its own, they have the writing team and then they have the storyboard team, which is about six people or so in a room that are just cranking out storyboards for, for Matt and Trey to look at in editorial. Yeah. And then the rest of us 
they they basically have what I call they have the animators that are animating, and then they have uh, what I they call them technical directors, but I call them everything that isn't animation. <laughs> so, <laughs> Chief everything officer, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, so that's that was what I was hired for. I was I was they called them the technical directors. We used to joke we technically direct our hands to the mice because <laughs> that was the only we're like that's the only way that that phrase makes sense. Because that's but, what I was wondering when you told me technical director, and I'm not overly familiar with how animation is done as much. So I was just wondering yeah. what technical you explained it as like backgrounds and rigging and things. Yeah. Like that. Is it anything on the back end of production? Like in how is that what a technical director is? A real technical director, what they would really do is they would handle all of the technical aspects of a production pipeline, and that's everything from writing software to solving problems that come up in the pipeline mm -hmm. to setting up just the tools for yeah. the animator, the animators and the artists to use. That's what TDs really do. Um, mm. At South Park, like you just mentioned, they do everything. And in fact, the thing we do the least is write code. They actually tell us don't do that um, because, yeah. because the schedule is so fast and the pipeline is so fragile in that way that they say like, if you write any more software, that's almost grounds for being terminated because they don't want you to mess with any of the tools at all. Anything that could actually, pick up the production would be bad. And that makes sense. I mean, you guys have man managed to get it down to six. It's like, why would we want to add anything on that back end? Yeah. Can it? So, mean, they, so the TDs at um, South Park, they, they were the first line that is after um, Story. Story Department also designs... Uh, the main characters that are going to be used in every episode that's custom. And they also design any backgrounds that need to be made. And then the technical directors, they translate those into South Park assets. So we, we take all those drawings that they did and then we turn it into the final things that you'll see on the screen. Yeah. And then we create the characters, we rig those characters, then we hand those off to animation. We also set up the shots. Um, so we also do what's called layout mm -hmm. in a traditional television pipeline. And then... So by the time the animators get it, they can just open up the shot. All the characters are in there, backgrounds are ready, and they just slam through the animation. Um, That's amazing. When it comes to what you guys are doing, how do you, do you, when it, cause like it's an interesting process like in terms of creative input. And you told me you got to work on just it must <laughs> it must have been surreal some of the stuff you have to animate. So like, <laughs> I'll come at it from like a fan standpoint. Like sure. I'm, I'm about 25 years old. I've been growing up on South Park since I can remember season 12. <laughs> One of my favorite seasons it has some of wow. my favorite episodes right so the, like the china problem is one of my <laughs> yes one of my favorite episodes of all time when they go on the pf chang's yes and, and there's also <laughs> there's some fucking big raping that happens butters <laughs> keeps shooting people in the dick so like yeah you animated butter shooting people in their genitalia like is that <laughs> what you're telling me right now like that's well, so, the first season like yeah the I, it's funny, that episode is split into two halves. Um, there's the P.F. Chang's plot, and then the other plot is George Lucas and Steven Spielberg raping Indiana Jones. Oh my God, you're right. Oh my God, <laughs> you're right. So I was on the raping story, <laughs> not the dick shooting story. I got, but that thing is, I forgot those were the same episode, and I yeah. am constantly... I don't know if you're aware. Like, so a couple of days ago, Disney had their investor meeting. I know yeah. you're probably aware because you worked yeah. there. And they talked about how a new Indiana Jones movie is coming out. And it looks promising because they have a great yeah. director in yep. charge of it. 
my brother and I are the biggest Indiana Jones nerds of all time. <laughs> awesome. Every day before we would fall asleep, we'd have the VHS growing up. We'd watch it every night. And Griffin sends me this text, my brother, uh, when they announced <laughs> a new movie. And it was literally a gif of like George Lucas <laughs> thrusting yes. into Harrison Ford. And he's like, well, they're going to fuck Indiana. And I'm yeah. just like, that's Stop, crazy. stop. He's already dead. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, real quick, guys, just a, just an update. Um, this meeting might end in like ten minutes, and we'll just I'll start a new chat room, and we'll do. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Just because I don't have the paid for Zoom, because oh, I see oh, it. Yeah, yeah. I see the remaining time. So when we get down we to the like warning, we'll do, we'll do a two-minute warning and stuff like sure. that. Sure. You got to talk me through that. I, I, and I know, again, Jessica, we're going to dive in deep with Disney, and I want to <laughs> know how much time you have too. So, how much time do we have left to talk to you guys in, in total? Right uh, probably like a, an, an hour or so right? an hour okay so I'll, yeah. I just I just want to be able to gauge it because I want to make sure I get into like the later ends of your guys career yeah. um, with New York and everything of that nature and then how you oh, guys yeah. met at Sony but again I just am such an Uber <laughs> South Park fan too so like I want to get into this and anything we don't cover we can always do it again because we're all at home sure. zoom nation right now but sure. yeah walk me through <laughs> what it was like to not only pass that rigorous series of test and then <laughs> you find yourself i mean that that's crazy to me i mean what are some of your like biggest memories from season 12 and like animating that because that's a standout to me is all that kind of shit that episode is one of the most important episodes to me so mm -hmm. it's, it's funny the uh the one of the fun things about being on the artist side of and like the, i guess what i mean by that is the non-writing side of working yeah. at south park is that it's just it's just as much of a surprise for us as it is for everybody who's going to watch the episode. That's awesome. And we don't know what we're going to be making episodes about um, until the week of. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple episodes that are already kind of ready. Like the Matt, Matt and Trey and the whole writing team have a writer's retreat that they do. And yeah. they usually come out of that with a sort of a bundle of ideas that are a little bit uncooked, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and we have our big, uh, like, like let's get fired up meeting um, that happens right before we start the season. And we have about four weeks of ramp up before episodes start going on the air. And mm -hmm. we usually use those four weeks to get a head start on the episodes that we know are going to be really hard to do. Um, and explain what you mean by that in terms of hard to do. South Park is such a groundbreaking show in terms of controversy or production time. So mm -hmm. when you say hard to do, do you mean like actually the time on the pipeline? Yes, exactly. It's it's yeah. episodes that are going to require, just from an asset standpoint, mm -hmm. way more work than a regular episode. And there's yeah. usually one of those per, per season, and it's usually episode four. And, Why? Uh, Why episode and, four? I don't know. <laughs> it just works out that way. <laughs> so random. It's it's a thing where usually because depending on the size of the episode, they usually need just a couple more weeks even after airing has started to yeah. fine tune that episode. And so was so, the episode, wait, so when you did season 12, was it the breast cancer show the, ever? Was it that? The two, uh, me and this guy, Dan, Dan Patow, who still works there, by the way, uh, we used to call them episodes. Yeah. And we were like, what's the episode? And, uh, the so in season 12 there's two of them because i don't know if you remember this but back when season 12 was on the air all of television at that moment in time was doing a thing where they were splitting their seasons in two yeah like that was a were. very common thing it was like you know here's the and then they would have like here's the mid-season finale of lost or heroes I mean, or whatever else was on was tv huge back then. i don't know why that's just the yeah. standard 
And now, now they've done the thing where they've recombined them. But uh, so we had two like episodes, you might say. Um, yeah. And our first one that we did that was giant was Canada on Strike. Canada on and Strike, of course. That was yeah, that was super big. Uh, and that was the thing where it's like, okay, well, we have to create a ton, a ton, a ton, a ton of like Canadian stuff. Yeah. Um, we had to make the hardest thing to do, honestly, was I was on the, I was on the team that was making all of the like displaced Canadians that <laughs> were sort of becoming sick and dying and whatnot. And so, yeah. um, that was an instance where actually I did have to write a script for myself to manage the beards on the Canadians. No way. <laughs> well, that's what I mean by creative freedom. You guys do really have to like, it's such a, and they give you that freedom. Like you don't have to, you have yeah. to check in with people when you have to do that. Like it's, well, it's most of the time. Well, and again, like you should never, ever write custom code at South Park, but this was a case where I was just like, there's no way I'm going to get all these Canadian faces done unless I come up with a tool that can help me. And yeah. th that was fun actually, because as technical directors, sometimes you get to sneak your friends and family into episodes as characters. And it's usually when they're just like, we need you to make like six more townspeople, you know? Mm -hmm. And for the Canadian episode, even though they all just look like Terrence and Phillips, like the flapping yeah. heads. The um, mouth. Yeah. Yeah. I made a couple friends of mine into Canadians for that episode and <laughs> um, dressed them like how they normally dress and whatnot. But, uh, so that was a big one we had to prepare for. And then the other one was, uh, gosh, I'm trying to think if that was in the second half, but it was this episode called, um, well, uh, hold on just one second. Yeah. It was uh major boobage. And that's yeah. the, that's, Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. That's the one where it's, um, it's like, uh, what is what's cats the are illegal it? because they were getting high on the cat urine. Yeah, it's the cheesing yeah. episode. The kids yeah. call it cheesing. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the, it's, what's the heavy metal? Well, that's like, heavy that's metal. That's the heavy metal. Yeah. Crazy heavy metal hallucinations. Yeah. Yeah. That is such a wild episode. It's nuts. That was a nuts episode. And and that, you know, just a, a slight behind the scenes, you can look this up online, but like a slight behind the scenes on that would be Matt and Trey really, really wanted to make it look like heavy metal. And they were like, they were like, is there any way we can use our existing pipeline to do that? Um, and they tried very hard to find like a shortcut way to do it. And in the end, they said, no, the only way we can achieve that weird look is to do it the way they did it, which is to hire 2D traditional animators to animate it like you would animate a regular hand animated movie. And they hired a bunch of people from Warner Brothers, I believe. And we set up like a second animation studio inside the office where those guys were just working on Cintiq, like draw on monitors um, round the clock basically and trying to yeah. blast that episode out. So that's why, that's why they pushed that one to episode four. So like, yeah, there's no way we're going to make that for the premiere. So uh, that's yeah. Wild. I just, uh, but, Oh, no, go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, but it, it, just in terms of like, just to get back to the big, like fired up, meeting that we have at the beginning of the season mm -hmm. that's where they announce i guess that's where i was going with like the whole writer's retreat thing it's like frank the executive producer comes on and he we all get together in this big foyer and he's like okay guys like today marks the first day of the the run and yeah. um he goes we're going to give you a little bit of a idea of what's coming up to get you guys excited he goes this season we're going to be doing an episode where it's based on heavy metal he says, that's going to be interesting. 
He's like, and we're also going to do a rape episode. And everybody was like, what? And he's like, yeah. He goes, we're going to be do, doing some parodies of some very famous rape scenes from movies. So get prepared Jeez. for that. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember when they said that, and I my first thought when they said that was like, oh my God, I wonder if we're going to do The Accused, the that has Jodie Foster in it. And, my uh, first thought would be Clockwork Orange. Yeah, and and we did, but it didn't make it into the final episode. Okay, we, yeah, singing, singing in the Rain to me is the most famous rape yeah. scene. Most famous rape yeah. movie. Yeah, we, I worked on that. I worked what a on weird the, list to have existed, but like yeah, the singing in the rain. We yeah. we created those characters and everything. We animated oh. that whole scene, but it we didn't put and, it in. And what with Indiana Jones? Like, yeah, because we're doing it with Indiana Jones. Yeah. And he's all tied up. And he's, you know. Just come down so, to Comedy Central. Going, was, I think it was a time thing. We uh, we did four rape scenes and we had to cut one. <laughs> yeah, and I mean so. that's the thing. Jessica brings up a good point of like how often Comedy Central is like, fuck no, like you can't. Do, <laughs> like, at that point, you're 12 years into them just like getting away with so much, and yeah. they put Comedy Central on the map. So in a way, it's kind of like how LeBron isn't owned by the Lakers. Yeah. He kind of owns the Lakers. It's like yeah. South Park kind of owns Comedy Central with their creative control. You know, I in the way of which, like, they literally bank, they gave them a bankroll. Um, yeah. How long did you stay at South Park, though? Like, I mean, you join mm-hmm. on and you have this bombastic season, and that must have been insane. And I think it's, an, it's you call that your career start, right? Yeah. Like, how long so, did you stay there? Yeah. So, um, and the funny thing is, so this brings it all the way back to something that I started to say earlier and I forgot to finish, which was because you were asking about, like, like uh, a little while ago, you're saying like, "Oh, how did it feel when you started? How, um, like, were you excited to jump into that world, or, nervous, or were you yeah. kind of loathing it?" And um, and really, yeah. Like on one hand, as a young, you know, as a youngin back then, it's your age. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I was just so excited to be part of the show, and frankly, was like, "Wow, I've always loved South Park." Um, I can't believe I get to be a part of that now. And, uh, but on the other hand, I knew from the get go, I really, really just wanted to work in feature animation and, um, and why and, specifically feature animation for me, who doesn't know much about the different shooters. <laughs> well, my, my sort of career goal was to become a feature character animator. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. I, I, I love character animation and I wanted to be working in a space that, really would really really allow for really nuanced performance in animation and yes. features features one of those realms where they give you enough time for the most part to do that to craft a, a really nice nuanced performance okay. where tv well, like the opposite in terms of timeline <laughs> yeah and tv's a little on a little bit more of a rush schedule and so you have a little less time to create more specific performances in that way also, I just wanted the challenge of it. I was like, oh, feature animation is so difficult. I kind of want to do it just for the, just to like, it's like becoming a good musician. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you, you want to be a part of a group that gives you the opportunity to both learn from, and that, and that's a big part of it, even for me now today. One of the things I value the most about working in feature animation is the education part of it, where you get to learn from people who are way better than you for the most part, uh, how to do your craft. It seems to be a consensus when I talk to people who've done feature animation because a question, I, again, I didn't prepare many, prepare many questions for you because I just wanted to, to be organic. But mm-hmm. something I truly did want to know for both of you is who your animation like 
influencers were like when you grew up watching something i'm gonna stop i'm such a nostalgic person mm. i grew up on animation and there's some animators who have literally changed my life and no one really even knows their names i'm just like <laughs> who are those people for you like where you're like i want to do what they did like i've spent hours in the dvd behind the scenes features watching mm. how to animate and now i want to do that very thing like for me <laughs> that would be you know obviously like give hayao miyazaki and people like that but then you have things over in Europe and in Russia and Israel, especially their animation with cell shading is incredible. I just want to know what that is for you. So mm -hmm. do you want to take this one sure. the first? Yeah. Yeah. I, for me growing up, I mean, obviously like, like everybody, like most animators, you're raised on a buffet of Disney films. And um, so those of course <laughs> are a, a major influence. Um, I, I always say that when people ask me what made me want to get into animation, I usually pinpoint for me, um, I, th I think that I, w I saw the Lion King in theaters as a kid. Wow. And, um, the I best specifically see movies in theaters, arguably ever in our generation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 1994. Uh, yeah. Um, I, so I, yeah, I saw that film. I would have been 11, I guess when that film came out. And, mm -hmm. uh, I remember the, when they, they got to the elephant graveyard scene, um, th that, scene for me to me and i had a gigantic theater in my town growing up it was it was a converted opera house so wow. the screen is massive and uh okay. looking up at that thing and seeing it i was just like what that communicated to me that animation the world of animation was as theatrical if not more theatrical than any any great film that i had seen at that age and that scene i was just like holy cow it feels so big feels so epic and the lion king uh, definitely defined to me what scale can look like because so much of it is landscape yeah you know and disney movies usually don't take they don't have a lot of ma in their film where we just like we take the time to slow down whereas mm -hmm. the lion king did like so much mm -hmm. of their runtime was dedicated to showing you what you're about to be the, the landscape you're living in and that, yeah that been it, insane. it takes the time to set the tone and the mood and uh there's so many great beautiful establishing shots that are like oh yeah well here's the serengeti and whatnot and the scene where it starts raining over the fields is super awesome to me still and it's it's just a moment that they take out of the film to again establish mood and tone without any characters that talking. movie different from a lot of disney films in my opinion I, that's the first movie i've ever watched in my life i was mm. born in 95 so like mm. when i was a baby my parents you know used to just do the they just put me in front of the yeah. lion king to get me to stop crying so like <laughs> i grew up watching that is like the defining childhood movie for me um i grew up on disney as well so i definitely resonate with what you're saying there it's yeah. interesting and then my babysitter used to that was how i learned about disney films is she used to bring over what was on vhs at that time which was the great mouse detective and the robin hood and cinderella and stuff like that and so i think that's also why the lion king was so incredibly epic to me was because my experience watching disney films up to that moment was on the small screen yeah and that's true and it so it just seemed a little smaller and also like just you know the the scale of the music and the sound and everything well, they did and it's interesting to me too because they had a lot of create i think the reason we saw a change in formula with them is because disney didn't have their eye on that project in 1992 mm -hmm. and 1993 they're like pocahontas is going to be our money maker and they put their yeah. 18 on pocahontas i'm sure everyone in this conversation knows that 
and mm-hmm. we can, you know, look what a B team can give you, one of the best animated films of all time, um, yep. with Hans Zimmer and Elton John at the helm of the score that you're talking about, which is fascinating. Yeah. But that, that decade in general was crazy for animation. I mean, when we look at the 90s, if you're a kid in the 90s, when you, we, we transitioned into Pixar animation. Hayao Miyazaki made a return with Princess Mononoke. And like mm-hmm. that, to me, that's like the craziest animation I've ever seen in my life. I mean, I mm-hmm. have recently, I didn't, I grew up like, just like you, David, like I grew up on Disney films, animation, and then Brad Bird. So like Iron Giant and then anything Disney was my love. Yeah. Um, and then I've always, and then I guess recently I did fall in love with Sony because Spider-Verse literally is like one of the craziest movies I've ever seen in my life. And then, yeah. um, but I just discovered Miyazaki within like the last two months. Mm. I never saw a Miyazaki film. And got, I'm just, this got, a year? Lot of, got a lot of great this stuff year. to watch. Oh yeah. Oh my <laughs> God. Like just this year? This is just this year. And I never oh. saw anything. I never saw Spirited Away. I never saw anything. I'm I like oh, man. and I watched Spirited Away a few times. I watched it once and was like, this is wild. And then I took mushrooms and watched it again. I was like, this is wild. <laughs> Um, <laughs> it's like discovering then, Hitchcock, um, you know? Yeah. And again, I'm not even someone who's super big on like doing psychedelics all the time. And I'm like, this movie, I just want to like appreciate everything about this guy's. I've never met such a master of his craft. I've never seen such a master of their craft before while watching these films. I just now finished my marathon. I finally caught up. So I've nice. seen all the Miyazaki films plus Grave of the Fireflies, which were my heart. Wow. Oh, no. I'm so, so um, <laughs> what, about, what about you, Jessica? What, what, what made you want to be an anime? I mean, I know you started off in like Canadian TV animation, which is super fascinating. Because yeah. oh. Canadian TV is slept on, man. People give <laughs> Canadian TV too much shit. I grew up watching so much Canadian TV, especially I mean, like Trailer Park Boys and Nirvana yeah. the Band the Show, which is one of my oh, favorite things of the world. So good. Uh, yeah. So anyway, I, I mean, they had the first 3D animated television show with Reboot that mm. even um, like Jimmy Neutron was the first 3D uh, cartoon for Nickelodeon. But Reboot was the first 3D animated television show in America. In the world, in really? The world. Yeah, was it in the world? Because I'm going to say, I think, and this would have been around what, like 99, 2000? Gosh, no, I should just, just check at the DVD. It goes, I'm staring it at it goes right way now. back. I think it was circa 1995 or six. Yeah. That's crazy. So that's wild. Yeah, because Neutron didn't get their run until December 2000 on Nickelodeon. That's only because mm-hmm. the movie had the profit and it was such a risky thing for them to do at the time. I, like, mm-hmm. I think it's nuts that people would invest in that on TV. Um, yeah, it's a long time ago. Because yeah. um, and and to give you an idea. Uh, um, Technically speaking, Reboot, the series, predates Toy Story 1. So I think the first episode aired, or first season aired in 1994 because uh, there was Pixar animators that were hired from Mainframe. Mainframe's the company that made Reboot. Mm -hmm. That were hired from Mainframe just because they had experience doing 3D animation. It was so new. It was so much, I would almost call animators in the mid to late 90s engineers I mean, animators are always engineers, right? Like you've talked a lot about code so far, David. And like, I think mm-hmm. animation is literally giving life to something. It's problem solving. But like in the 90s, it's crazy because it really was engineering a, a new technique. And we're still seeing that because mm-hmm. we're at the birth of this new era of animation. But so I want to put a pin in after I hear what Jessica talks about. I want to mm-hmm. know like your guys' thoughts on the difference between working on 2D and like a 3D kind of process, because I have my thoughts on both of them. Um, sure. With appreciation as a fan i've never animated anything but mm-hmm. I, I but like jessica your eyes widened when i messaged when i met 
second Hayao yeah. Miyazaki is was he an influence on you? He was a big influence for me. Um, yeah. A lot of my inspiration was drawn. I grew up watching Sailor Moon. I grew up watching oh. Dragon Ball Z. That was oh. kind of the cartoons that would come that I loved at late in late night TV in Canada. And I always thought, oh. I'm going to go to Japan and I'm going to be a Japanese animator. I'm really glad I didn't do that. I'm really glad I Why? didn't have the talent to do that because <laughs> doing and it's coming to the forefront now to go off on a small tangent, but the do amount of it. work that you have to put in when you come right out of school, Dave going to South Park, me starting in mm. TV, um, the yeah. first few years of your life often are non-existent. And that often doesn't change in Japan. Their work ethic is amazing, but right. the amount of work that you're expected to do is insane. Uh, they don't really have the ladder comfortability system. People yes. climb the ladder in Japan, but they don't gain comfort and leisure and mm -hmm. leeway as they do it. I, I know I have a, a friend who went and animated in Japan and mm -hmm. he said, and he only, he did it for two years and he said it was just like doing boot camp every day. And he said it was like it was creatively fun, but it, it was it felt way too much like a job. Whereas so many animators I know feel like they're doing a grind, whereas but they also have the feel of their passion to keep them going in that crunch time. So I think that's interesting that you say that that you did kind of dodge a bullet in a way of not wanting to pursue that. Oh, for many reasons. One, I can't draw as well as I'd like as many two mm. D animators, but um, the work ethic is amazing. But yeah. I. I'm glad that I pursued 3D over 2D in the end, but still most of my inspiration came from 2D animated movies, specifically anime and the manga style, because they did what many American uh, studios are doing now. They touched on very dark emotions and very sad emotions. They would yeah. have longer pauses and some of the animation ah is just incredible like in Hayao Miyazaki where you have those pauses and you know a little bit they cover it in Bambi when his mother dies and there's a moment of silence and even yeah. in Inside Out when Joy is holding onto the balls and talking about uh, the girl as though she were her own child. And I was like, what a wonderful, wonderful I think moment. Pixar is a differentiator. I think Pixar yeah. really in their first decade run reminded me a lot of Ghibli. Now that I have seen Ghibli, I, I, you should see my like hypocrisy on Twitter where I've talked about how much I praise <laughs> Pixar. And then within two weeks, I'm like nothing. And this is a controversial statement because I, I love controversial statements, right? I was <laughs> like, I haven't seen Disney do anything that Ghibli has done from a filmic standpoint in my entire and again that's not true <laughs> but like it was more the fact that i'm like i've never seen these complicated all age stories be told also while beautifully animated i just haven't seen that but at the same time it's like i'm fully aware of sleeping beauty and and, and snow white and there's certain things that are just like they blow me away at disney and they still do yeah. i just have like i'm on the hype train with japanese animation like for you what films stood out though like with, with David's being Lion King, what would be yours? Uh, I mean, I do uh, love the Iron Giant, but for anime, it was uh, Kiki's Delivery Service. That's my um, favorite film ever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, will, I get quite emotional when I watch any kind of animated film. Um, or yeah, any film, for that matter. 
but uh, it was really Kiki's delivery service, and I thought it was fascinating and cool. I mean, my favorite Miyazaki film is The Castle of Cagliostro, but for Kiki... I haven't seen that. Oh, it's good. It's not it's on good. HBO. It's not on HBO, and I haven't. I didn't want to pirate it. I wanted to find it. And I don't know if it's still on Netflix. Yeah, it was on it Netflix was on for Netflix. a minute. Yeah, and I, isn't it a part of a larger series? Or it's his first feature yes. film. I, yeah. You know, so I, I. That's why I have. I love that you mentioned Kiki's Delivery Service because it was the last one I watched in my marathon, because Aww. no one was recommending it. Everyone, you know, go to Spirited Away, then go to Mononoke, and then I was, then I watched Howl's Moving Castle, Totoro, Nastika, Ponyo. And when I got to Kiki's, it was hands down my favorite because of how much it resonated with me from a story standpoint, how mm. metaphorical it is from, if you appreciate animation already or filmmaking in general, you understand creative burnout and pursuit of passion. And I think that's probably why you love it so much. You talked in the beginning of this conversation mm -hmm. about wanting to go where your passion is and like follow a path of fulfillment. And that's literally the whole theme of Kiki's delivery service is her trying to judge whether or not she should stick with a passion or some bullshit minutia nine to five job. And I think that's an amazing theme. And you can, you can burn out. And especially in our industry, it's something that is to be expected, sadly. Yeah. But you know, there are ways you can pull yourself out of it. There is always a light at the end of the tunnel. And a lot of that comes from your peers. I mean, you kind of asked earlier where, who we draw our inspiration from. Of course, there are some very famous animators in the industry, but I most draw my inspiration from my coworkers. Ooh, um, I love hearing that. I love hearing that. Yeah, it's really, for many different reasons. When I was a lead, there would be uh, two other leads that would sit next to me and I would draw inspiration on how they react to a problem. As someone who had never been a lead before, I didn't always know how to approach certain problems to give a meaningful solution to my team or to other animators. When you say without... lead, you mean lead animator on the team of like, how many animators would be under you as a lead? Because I think some oh. people might not know what a lead animator is. And, you know, a lead animator can be very different depending on the studio as well. But where I was, it was a television studio called Bardell in Canada. Yeah. And my team was usually, I want to say five to seven people. Um, mm -hmm. I know, I know in film, the teams can be very big. Um, and, and this was still 3D? It, this was still 3D still with five 3D. to seven? That's insane. Five to seven with 3D animation. <laughs> but that's even a small number. Mm -hmm. And a lot of... I'm Depending saying. on where you that's are, yeah. That's what I'm saying. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lead can be just time management. How mm -hmm. you can get uh, in television an episode done. Um, and, you know, some animators are quicker than other animators, but some animators' quality is better. And you have to know your team. So I would look to my other leads, and they would always be calm it's they would always be so positive and that gave me such strength and then working in film seeing animators who are so good and it makes you yeah. excited to animate it's like when you see a film that makes you excited spider-verse made it, so it, many people and that's a mainstream excited. example it's crazy because like that that year was insane for animation 2018 like for yeah. me spider-verse is like it's it, i mean again like it's literally the background on my phone but like <laughs> I, but like i mean isle of dogs came out that same year oh, and like, yeah. mm -hmm. you know i just think that 
for me, when I see, I think people who don't draw, don't paint, don't give a shit about film, don't even watch. I know some people, and I hate these kind of people, but I have some friends <laughs> like this, who will be like, I just can't get into animated films or animated, you know, I just don't resonate with them. And I'm just almost shocked by that because for me, I resonate 10 to one with things that are animated because it's imagination. I'm not constrained by the realism. I think when you are able to, I think it's universal in the experience of appreciating nuance and effort in animation because it's unlike anything. Because animation is literally to give life to something. We are not acting, we are not blocking, we are not set designing or dressing. We are creating from our heads and we have to fulfill someone's vision while also having our own identity on the page. And I think that's, there's something about that that's so fascinating to me. And like, do you guys feel like throughout your careers you've always managed to be able to have that kind of passion exist with what you're doing? Because you, you know, you've, haven't directed your own film yet. <laughs> so it's like, it's like you've worked for other studios. I mean, I know David, you've had, you've gone from like Sony and Blue Sky and, and, and I know you've been at Sony, Jessica. And I just think like, how does it, how is creative control? Because to me as an artist, creative control is very important. It, it really is. So how do you feel like that's come and go as far as trade-offs? <clears throat> I'll let you take this one. Mm -hmm. A loaded question. Say, oh, a loaded question. Yeah, no. no, no, not at all. I think that um, as far as how much personal creative input do animators have, um, both in television and in film, I think mm -hmm. I think in film there's probably as far as animation goes, there's probably a little more room for that. Mm -hmm. And um, you've, I'm sure, this applies to almost every creative discipline. Is that um, there is great personal creativity to be found within constraints. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and what we mm -hmm. mean by that specifically, or at least what I mean by that is, you know, when you're an animator in feature film, <clears throat> you are sort of, you know, we're the, you're the actors, basically you're the puppeteers. Yeah. And, really. and you're following a, uh, a script and like a storyboard. Um, but, in each way, like, and just like an actor on film is like a live action actor. Yeah. They are interpret, their job is to interpret that moment in the script as clear and as entertaining as they can, uh, in service of the story. Given their and, resources and things of that and, nature. It's and that's, yeah. And that's what we do. And there's a really a tremendous amount of creativity in that in terms of, we like and like you said earlier, we're we're also problem solvers. Where we have to find uh, what is the most well. As far then in animation, since we get to control what the characters look like, we also have to make them as appealing as possible. So we're we're making them as nice to look at as it's well. Hardest job ever because I think a lot of the work that you put in has to go unnoticed. It's almost mm. like an editor. It's I, absolutely I mean, true. And obviously, a lot of that's a standard for a lot of people when it comes to the production aspects of filmmaking. But what I mean is like, you can notice when someone is animated on a rig that's weird and jarring. Mm -hmm. But when someone has nuance and fluidity, you almost, it almost just like, you don't, you don't register it as much because mm -hmm. it's just so natural. And that is so much harder. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why I appreciate animation so much. And I, I think it's also fascinating that you, you say the puppeteer, because it's literally kind of like what Jessica is doing right now um, mm -hmm. on like a, and I guess like that kind of redefines my interpretation of anime. My definition of animation has changed a lot in the last three years because I try to understand it in deeper levels. Again, I got into more of the Wes Anderson films, a lot of European and Israeli 
stop motion. And I fully discovered anime in the last couple of years. And I still haven't seen Akira and Ryan wants to kill me for that. And I need to watch <laughs> it. But I like Jessica, like when it comes to animation, I still consider you an animator. If you're doing all the things that I understand about your job, like, yeah, yeah I don't uh, know more about what that means that you, and you currently do that, right? You're currently an Imagineer at Disney, right? No, as of, as of sadly, uh, a month ago, due to all the Disney layoffs, uh, with the parks, I was not, uh, I was not immune to that, I'm but sorry. I'm back in feature. It's okay. It was, yeah. it's, you know, um, I came into the job through a series of fortunate circumstances and yeah. I left on the most wonderful note and just through a series of other fortunate circumstances through an unfortunate circumstance, I got back into feature, which is great. I can stay down here. I'm very happy, but, um, actually really optimistic way of looking at it because it's like truly a good thing um you mm-hmm. know i didn't know that happened to you i didn't i didn't know no, that it's so recent it's so recent and but you know i can still speak uh as an imagineer and it was so fun to have that title because i don't have a degree in ima- in engineering so i wasn't sure if i was allowed to and i asked <laughs> and they went of course you're an imagineer you imaginate and i was like mm-hmm. that's not <laughs> but, imaginate isn't a word <laughs> come on disney i mean just but, that that makes that's like the kind of job i would want to do every day i used to really want to do that job because i grew up being such a nerd on disney's parks living so close to them and i wanted to every day i'm like i want to design these rides i want to design these experiences like and i find that i didn't cool. think it was a position that existed um i thought i had to be an engineer to become an Imagineer and that's why when Dave was at South Park I was still working um, through university as trying to pursue um, a degree in engineering and Mm. it just wasn't working out because I was more artistic than technical so I then went uh, to to go off on a small tangent I then went to more specific technical schools for art and it worked out so when I was looking um, at the time, I was looking to come down to California because David got a job at DreamWorks and yeah. Dave actually found the job and he sent it to me. And when I read the description, it said um, animating digitally on animatronic figures. And then I read <laughs> the description again. And I was like, no, this. That's so wild. And, that, and that's and it's based out of Anaheim then? Like, is that like how it, it is based out of Anaheim, but the Imagineering uh warehouse is right down the street it's, it's just yeah so disneyland is there oh, but all of the <laughs> i when i found out when i where i worked i was honestly across the street from david Did where it? i could look and see yeah. the building there's no way disney imagineering and dreamworks animation headquarters both of them are, are literally side. across the street from each other they're on the you same can walk street. one street over and there it is <laughs> yeah Disney being Disney found out DreamWorks had bought up land. And so they bought up all the other land. Yeah, that's, that DreamWorks. could be its own story. In the, they're in the acquisition business in many ways, not just with companies, but land as yeah. well, for sure. Yeah, And they're, yeah. they're yeah. in the competitive business. Yeah. <laughs> apparently, I didn't know that this was a thing, but apparently somewhere, <laughs> somewhere in the, and you'll appreciate this because you sound like you're a very well-read Disney fan. Um, Somewhere in the 80s or 90s when Disney was getting very, very greedy um, in terms of like trying to gobble up all the patents and copyrights around the world, um, they actually tried to copyright and trademark Mouse. 
like Mickey Mouse. Yeah, I know. And they were like, yeah, we want to own, we want to actually own the word mouse and have that be a, a, a property of Walt Disney Company. And the courts fought them on that. And they were like, no, you can't do that. Like, there was another thing they did during that era where they wanted to also have um, the term original film copyright. Yeah. <laughs> the same, within the same decade, they wanted the, which isn't as serious, the yeah. original movie. Because I think they ended up getting the Disney Channel original movie or something right. like that. Right. But like, I think it's wild that they wanted like original product, mouse, and there was something else of like, are you guys serious? Like, you really, yeah. I mean, they so, shot the shot. I mean, like, they're a lot ambitious. Of, yeah. A lot of companies so have Companies I even love have tried to do like Sony oh. PlayStation has tried to copyright the word cross and share play and let's play. Which is and they recently yeah, like when Spider Verse they, they tried, tried to, to trademark yeah. onto Ohio Ohio so we're from Ohio, right? So Ohio mm-hmm. State wanted to trademark the word the. You know, fuck the because <laughs> the, Ohio, the State. Ohio State, the Ohio State University. I learned that they're, this year. They're so far up their own ass. They wanted to, <laughs> they wanted to trademark God bless the word you. The. Sidebar, yeah. go Cincinnati. Yeah. Oh yeah, by the way, I, I hope Cincinnati back wins it all this year. We're talking about <laughs> yeah. Cincinnati right now. So like, wait, wait, short, since, go Cincinnati. That makes me happy. Why do you say that? Because oh, they're kicking ass. Yeah, well, I'll, well because all of us graduated from University of Cincinnati. Awesome. I graduated recently and Ryan just graduated like two days ago. From Congratulations. <laughs> you made it. Way to go. So, and it's funny, we, we both started, we both went in there for like business and communications. And then by the end of it, we started taking on these film classes. It was really? kind of funny how we wedged our way through, <laughs> kind of like squeezing through a keyhole to kind of take over the <laughs> film program. Um, uh, they, they didn't have an active film club there. They didn't have a film department that was like running on a student body basis. So we're like, let's make a podcast oh. and use the resources to talk to really cool people and see how nice. we do it. Because awesome. like, that's what we want to do. He wants to work on the back end with production, editing, management i want to work on directing production i mean we kind of want to work on the same things when it comes to filmmaking mm-hmm. stuff eventually mm-hmm. like that's our goal yeah. it's Is very that why you're moving down to austin it definitely contributed to it so something when you talked about you you move based on passion based on cities mm-hmm. based on job mm-hmm. i refuse to so i graduated in august and oh. pre-covid it was on the up and up it was like the podcast was taking off and it wasn't in a stance of viewpoints as much as it was on we were getting connections with people we respect, like you guys. Like, mm-hmm. I didn't care about clout. I didn't care about popularity or projects or money. I was like, I just want to meet people who have genuine passion and our connections benefit in many ways, business mm-hmm. and personal. And it was just, it was ever, it was ever flowing. And then the pandemic slowed that down. And I was like, I'm not going to let it stop. I'm like, let's yeah. go to a town where there's kind of a frontier of industry when it comes mm-hmm. to entertainment. And Austin is exploding. The oh, house yes. market, the podcast market, it's the live music capital of the world. Comedians are flowing here in groves, mm-hmm. in, in droves rather, I can't talk. Yeah. It's just, and Ryan's coming here in about a month. I'm already here on the ground. And I just, we just thought it would be a good start for us to kind of rebrand and start over again because we only had the podcast from like january 2020 to like march and in that time we did a lot of traction and i'm like let's just do it again let's just meet some cool yeah. people our goal is to be in this industry and talk about this industry and promote the people who deserve to be promoted um, and now you can walk over to joe rogan and high five him because yeah. he's there now <laughs> he's very active in the city i mean i saw him and bill burr like last oh, week hey, outside awesome. Outside in like a field, like it wow. was really funny. Like we literally That's were out cool. in the field, 
socially distanced and Bill Burr was just like, man, anyone's going to ask you guys if you're a fan of industry or stand-up comedy or whatever. And they're like, did you ever drive in the middle of nowhere, freezing your balls off and at like 10 o'clock at night in a field to watch a stand-up show? It's <laughs> like, you know, and Chappelle apparently was there, but he didn't come on stage. It's just mm-hmm. like, this town is definitely, I feel like we're seeing that. And like something mm-hmm. I'd love to ask you guys is being in LA or at least, you know, mm-hmm. in, in the burbs of LA, COVID has made LA change more than it has in a long time. Because mm-hmm. um, I think the things that have been annoying about LA are finally coming to a bit of fruition. And I, mm-hmm. I'm 50-50 with Los Angeles. Like, mm-hmm. I'm not trying to shit on LA. I just, I, I like a lot of their legacy. And I think there are hidden things about LA that are unlike anywhere else. True. Mm-hmm. The food in, in Los Angeles and the history of entertainment in the charm of of how Los Angeles works. You just mm-hmm. gotta really be from there or around there to understand that. But to me, I'm like, I think it's it's due for a change. Like I think like with what we see with happening in Atlanta and Toronto and even now Austin, I, I do you guys notice and feel that change of landscape while being on the ground in LA right now during mm-hmm. the COVID pandemic? I don't notice a change yet. If it will come, I believe it'll be a very slow change. A lot of it, I think, will come with the building of the subway system that they are expanding. Um, it's just in such LA. a yeah. right now? They're well, working on it, but it's such a grand, grand city um, that it's really hard to change the face of it. Whereas, yeah. you know, Austin becoming uh, a more up and coming city of industry for comedians it has already it's been so established weird. for music it's so like awesome so eclectic that's mm-hmm. the other thing there's no there's no upper not upper class there's no right. like hierarchy in austin whereas la has its hierarchies a lot of, of like people a lot of people would call austin the portland of texas it's got that same kind would, of vibe. I would do. For me, there's a few cities when I moved out of Cincinnati that I was looking at. I was like, without money being a factor, because even though it is, I was like, San Francisco has those kind of vibes, but they're getting very washy with how expensive it is and overcrowded. Oh, yeah. Portland, are, in Portland yeah. in Denver, Atlanta, and Austin mm-hmm. right now mm-hmm. have the same kind of influx of housing, of people pop, you know, going there and... I think Austin, what stands out to me is the fact that it embraces how, like, let's shake up the formula a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, let's just keep breaking the wheel and then rebuilding it, which is really fascinating to me. And that's why I wanted to come here because if I'm trying to get a start in something in this industry, and I'm not even quite sure what it is yet because I've done many hats. I've done like the directing and producing and hosting. Like, I'm not quite sure what I want to do yet, but... I wanted to be in a city where there was a, a great amount of potential without oversaturation. This city has a lot of people, but it's still a bit less saturated feeling. Still like, I have, I'm gonna well, be a bit blunt with questioning here. And like, sure. is there well, anything with, when I, when I, sure, right? When I, which isn't my style usually, but like <laughs> you guys have so a, a portfolio that resonates with me. Like I say that truly, like I read where you guys have worked and the projects you've worked on from, mm-hmm working at Disney to working on How to Train Your Dragon, which hands down is one of the most underrated and beautiful animated films of the last 10 years, in my opinion. Um, especially with the, 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 the way the animation flows with the music, I think mm. is almost, Miyazaki. it's like Miyazaki-like, I mean, when you see it. Um, 
especially with a Nordic influence. I want to just be able to ask you when you knew you were going to be asked a bunch of questions about your careers and you have to talk <laughs> itself, what were some things you were looking forward to talking about? Because for me, I have my angles on like how I resonate and connect with what you talk. And oddly enough, like when David mentioned his passion for cocktails, I'm like, even more so than South Park, I am such a wannabe bartender, dude. I can talk about that all day. So like, what are some things that like you would love to be able to talk about? Like five or six things that we can just kind of rapid fire it out and edit it in the last 30 minutes or so. Do you want to? Well, uh, maybe the first thing I'll say, uh, if you don't mind, is just to sort of launch off of that last thing that you had mentioned about how has LA changed or yeah. have we noticed a difference and whatnot? And really there's, I guess, like two things I could say about that personally. Yeah. And, um, and uh, this, this also will bring back something that you had mentioned way earlier in the podcast, which is, um, so on one, on one hand, there's, uh, I think something that a lot of people don't think about when they think about LA is uh, sort of that it, on one hand, it's very much a production centric city. It's like a, you know, t television and film city, but it also yeah. just as much as that is, is just like a, a another American city where people mm -hmm. are, you know, living their lives and there's, and it has such a amazing diversity of different neighborhoods within, within it that yeah. it, yeah, it has its own kind of world of culture that, and, and Manhattan is another place that sort of is almost the same as that, where and I um, think people almost look at the stereotypes big. I'm mean, again, I think LA, there are stereotypes that hold true, but like for me, like when I visit LA, the first place I go is Koreatown and no mm -hmm. one even knows about Koreatown. I'm like, I like to go into Koreatown. I think it has a, one of the best art scenes in Los Angeles. And I think mm -hmm. the food scene there is incredible. And no one even really knows it exists unless you live in Southern it's California. <laughs> so it's like, you know what? I resonate with what you're saying 100%. And yeah. same thing with Manhattan. Hell's Kitchen is my go-to in Manhattan. And it's like people don't, people don't think about that. So Yeah. Yep. I have a, have a couple favorite spots in Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> yeah. And John's uh, on Bleecker is one of mine, I got to say. What is it? John's on Bleecker Street. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I've heard of it. Have you been? <laughs> I, we didn't go there, no, though. Yeah. I went yep. there, and the, it's, it's pizza. Yep. And I walked up, oh, and hey, I've never yeah. been here. I want to try Oh, I have been there. I actually and, have been there. Yeah. And the guy <laughs> didn't really speak much English. He's very Italian. Yeah. He's, he's Sicilian. We had, we had a bit of a, I'm not Sicilian by first generation, but like my, mm -hmm. my mother's family's Sicilian. So I was trying to shoot the shit with them. And I'm like, mm -hmm. I want to get a margarita or a pepperoni. He's like, is it your first time? Like broken English. I'm not even going to try to impersonate it. I'm like, mm -hmm. yeah. He goes, you get cheese. I'm like, okay. <laughs> and he gives me cheese pizza and it was the best cheese pizza I've ever had. Nice. Wow. The I agree with you, dude. So like, yeah, take the, I want you guys to take the reins on the next 30 minutes. And like the things <laughs> that when you knew you were going to be interviewing and talking about mm -hmm. your, I think you guys have truly special and important careers, seriously. Mm -hmm. And I want to like touch on specific topics that you want to touch on so like we'll carry on with the la changing topic and you were talking about how it's underrated and people sometimes look at it through a microscope and i agree because to me la is koreatown la is hmm. the burbs la hmm. is almost north because la is a weird entity it's like hmm. you could look at la almost still and being like well it could still be malibu or even like santa inez and santa barbara depending hmm. on like how far you want to consider la because it's a big ass state so who knows well, it's funny because my, my favorite parts of LA are actually a little south of, I love Santa Monica, but, and I love, I love Venice, 
But then like Huntington Beach, Redondo Beach, Manhattan Beach, places like that. Manhattan Beach is much it's it's like the true LA for surfing. Mm. It doesn't have it doesn't have the tourism as much in like right. kind of like, you know, like North Laguna, like the park area, like the hiking areas of North Laguna is really incredible. Yeah. You know? And you yeah. got and like you you guys really haven't seen the change because I feel like the internet has almost like hyperbolized this this LA fallout that's happened during COVID nineteen. I want to know like how true that is. I'm, I haven't been to LA since the pandemic. I, what uh, I guess I wonder if you could be specific about what I what are people I, saying about it? Yeah, <laughs> that, I mean, it's kind of it's almost more of a zeitgeist more than individual peoples of like hey the pandemic has happened and obviously it's affected every single city yeah la specifically i think california has been under a huge microscope because a lot of the bullshit has come to fruition of like we're not doing this anymore because we Mm -hmm. can't go out and jobs are tight we're not going to live in this area that's heavily taxed and Mm-hmm. Again, I'm a prog- I'm as progressive as they come, but even mm-hmm. with that being said, it's like there's some things that are complicated and morose. I think, the governing I think LA, I think LA tried to adapt just as much as every other major American city tried to adapt to doing business in the pandemic time. Given and, their, um, given their, people don't realize that LA is like. I mean, again, it's the, it's big, but like people don't realize how big. It's like downtown LA is not LA. It's literally 30 minutes west to the coast and all the way north, just south of Santa Barbara, down to just north of Laguna. Like LA is huge. And it's humongous. I think trying to figure that out is hard. And like the governor of California has a hard job on his hands because Southern, Mid, and Northern California are very different entities. It's, um, it's like trying to govern a country. I just still think that, so like this is the zeitgeist. Tech is leaving which is mm-hmm. more Silicon Valley, not LA. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. all tech is leaving, coming to Austin. Yep. Um, people are done with LA, with California taxes and regulation. Mm-hmm. They want to get out. And yep. entertainment has gone very digital. And we're going to cities where there's not as much history and taxation, such as we got Toronto, we got even Vancouver. Um, mm-hmm. And then Atlanta has exploded even more. Oh, and yeah. now we're in Austin. Mm-hmm. And yep. I mean, Atlanta and Toronto have been big for the last 10 years already, but I think it's, int- I just, I don't know. From when I hear people that I know that work in LA or people who talk about LA, they're like, yeah, we're leaving. Like, we're just, we're done. Like, it's already oversaturated and COVID was just like, why would we want to stay here? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I, I've never lived in LA. I want to know about how, like, what the sentiment is like. And it's probably case by case basis on your, based on your industry. It's fascinating to me. I think a lot of the, people are looking at the bigger picture, seeing what will happen when the pandemic is finished. And um, what people have been saying for years is that a lot of production can be done digitally. And this pandemic has forced people into that situation. However, once the uh, once the pandemic is finished, I think quite a few studios encourage people to come back into the office. Um, which is why I think some people have left maybe permanently, maybe temporarily, but there is still a need for people to be in the office. I do believe that the face of the industry is changing where there will be more remote work, which is fantastic. It can which be- is interesting if we can, if it, like, if you, if you don't have to sacrifice creative freedom in that way, mm-hmm. you know, that's it can be very beneficial for families. 
um, did we lose him or is he still there? <laughs> no, I'm still here. I spilled, oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> I spilled sorry. candle wax on myself just now, blowing out a candle. Oh, and, no. Oh, cleaning it up. Yeah. No, continue your thought, though. Continue your thought. Um, for people who are young parents, new parents, for people who might need to work from home one day, it's nice to know that that option will probably be more accessible. But yeah. even now, months and months later, talking to people, um, talking to my peers, a lot of them miss the office. They miss that collaboration, whether or not it's just because we can't go outside or that our lifestyle is limited. Um, there is so much creative freedom that you get in our industry, yeah. but a lot of that is drawing ideas from your peers. If you have a question, walking 30 seconds to someone's desk and being like, I've got a problem, let's solve it. And a lot of the, that is done in person. And I think that's still a very important part. Nice sweater. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I love, I think a lot of people would love to live outside of LA or outside a major city for affordability, for yeah. many reasons. I, I, I think, think people give it's a weird coming. thing where I almost find, depending on who I talk to, I find myself getting defensive or, because mm -hmm. yeah. like I can shit on LA all day, but I'm also like, I understand the things that I like about LA. I'm like, it's just like any other city. I just think that most people don't know the first thing about it. Hmm. And then they form an opinion on it. You know, like, it's a hard city to enter strand. And I love how you brought up, one of you brought up the neighborhoods of Los Angeles. And I'm like, mm -hmm. it's truly one of those, just like New York, neighborhood-centric places where if I, if I am on Rodeo Drive or if I am in the inner city of LA or if I am in Culver City or wherever, mm -hmm. it feels like a different part of California. I'm like, yeah. it's not the same vibe at all. So I just think that's very bad. I just, I don't think we should be so quick to judge it. But I do notice that it's for the first time seriously in a long time we've seen a major transition from needing la to exist as a physical entity for the jobs mm -hmm. to be done mm -hmm. the jobs to be done that are unique to la are mostly entertainment industry based mm -hmm. and for the first time ever and again to bring up south park because they did it miraculously we can do these things digitally yeah home and that goes for every industry i mean we've all had to work from home and get familiar with zoom as we are mm -hmm. right now but I think it's fascinating to see that companies can be like, well, we can go to other places and not just anywhere, but there's hubs that are forming right now, like Atlanta and Austin. And again, I bring up Toronto because Toronto has been big on my radar for the last five years, but I don't know if you guys are noticing any other hot spots where people are emigrating to, to well, Montreal, mostly. Montreal. Yeah. Yeah. That's really? kind of becoming that's... the new Vancouver in terms yeah. of tax breaks because mm -hmm. Vancouver lost a lot of its tax breaks or they're transitioning out. They're coming to the end had a of really their contract. Montreal, and I wish we could have continued. It's a damn pandemic. Man. Yeah. It'll happen. I think it's animation small. is unique to this situation mm -hmm. more than live action. Mm -hmm. where... and, explain why, and explain why. Be, and it's simply because of the, the digital nature and the virtual nature of animation. Yeah. How, where live action productions, they need people physically to be there in the sound stages shooting this stuff more than, you know, obviously way more than animation. And whereas in animation, just like South Park, it's like, well, the, the shooting is all being done virtually anyway. So, you yeah. know, people can be working from anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so... Like like Jess said, it's it's one of those things that like 
the industry was sort of on the brink of doing anyway. And this pandemic just pushed it further in that direction in animation. Mm -hmm. What have you guys been up to during this pandemic? Like, how do you, I mean, let's clarify real quick because I think we've, because we've talked about your portfolio so deeply and unchronologically. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what, what are you both doing right now officially? And then like, how has it been during this pandemic? I mean, for me, it's, uh, you know, DreamWorks Animation is one of those studios, just like South Park, that had to very, very quickly try to find a way to transition their whole entire pipeline remote which was extremely tough for them. They had to over, just like South Park, South Park did like a little making of, and it's, when I watched the little making of, I'm like, wow, this is just what we did at DreamWorks, yeah. but on a smaller scale. So it's not that yeah. unique to their, to their studio. It's literally. Yeah. Everyone. It was everyone. Everyone did that. And, uh, they DreamWorks, they sent everyone home. They very quickly had to find a way to massively widen their bandwidth, mm -hmm. uh, connection wise, the studio. They got everybody on a virtual private network to to go in, and it's it's a, extremely uh, like with DreamWorks, for example, our animation software is proprietary. They we don't use off the shelf software, so for us, it was literally us people, everybody at home with their own little unique setup, setting yeah. up a, a double monitor, ideally setup, where their monitors basically acted as like a window into their desk at their at the studio so you would basically your mouse would just control your mouse at the studio that way we were so we were remotely controlling our machines so all of our machines at work were still the machines mm -hmm. and then our monitors just became like a live video stream of what we were, were looking at so and, and like do you do you think it should have all like what are the things that are positive and negative of this i mean we obviously know mm -hmm. A big thing about being an artist is being inspired by the people you're working with. I agree with this. I've not, mm -hmm. I'm not an animator. I'm someone who's produced and directed only. Mm -hmm. And working with people of a multifaceted group of people who can kind of inspire me allows mm -hmm. me to be better. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. Just seeing, being around people who just kind of inspire me allows me to think sharper. So do you guys feel like it's been more difficult to be stimulated in a creative sense while being remote and performing your jobs to be done? It was an adjustment at the beginning, um, yeah. mostly out of adjusting to the adjusting to a new situation, adjusting to the climate of the world. But yeah. it was learning to adapt um, to reach out to people in different ways instead of just walking over th to their desk. Um, sometimes you would send them a message, but I know a lot of my um, critiques would evolve into just a video call and seeing someone's expression, hearing someone's tone of voice and how they're describing something still gave that in-person quality and that helped you know, keep the animation and keep the creative juices flowing. Whereas if someone were to just type notes, you can't always hear how they will receive it, how they're saying it back to you. So the f positive of having Zoom and of having being in this age where almost everyone has Wi-Fi um, or has like a really good bandwidth and just being able to very easily talk to them through video. I think that's been a really big positive. The pandemic 
if it could choose a time to happen, happened at a very good time for mm-hmm. animation, I think. Because even with Sony, um, at the office in Canada, we all worked remotely in the studio. Um, and I say that because all of our computers, I believe, are in Washington. Washington. So already really? in Canada, we work through a PCOIP box. And yeah. luckily for me, being back at Sony, I have been able to go to their office down here, pick up my equipment, and work as though I were in the Vancouver studio. I was able to set it up. I can work with everyone in Canada from LA. It's workable right now. And that is an incredibly (laughs) huge positive. I didn't have to move. I didn't have to worry about necessarily where I had to apply because so many places went remote for the pandemic. And that is a huge positive i think i mean yeah we understand that for sure i mean having both of us just graduated college you know you have internships and jobs lined up after i mean when we kind of launched our creative stuff in early 2020 which is this this year which is crazy (laughs) ten thousand years ago in early 2020 literally feels like two years ago for january ryan feels the same way like when we first launched this it was it was a bit international we were going to go over to you know, um, Croatia and Prague, and we're going to do San Francisco and Montreal and like see different studios and kind of see how we can grow. And that fell apart in a weird way. And it was Mm -hmm. like, all right, so now we have to be completely remote. And like, I think it's almost like figuring out, like, do you want to prioritize the job to be done? Do you want to prioritize money or opportunity? It's just been a weird gray landscape for those who are established and aren't already established. It's Mm -hmm. it's, it's very odd. Um, Mm -hmm. Where do you guys think it's going to go as far as animation, I guess, to your point, could be unaffected. But do you think it's affected the quality of zeitgeist of animation at all with COVID? I mean, with everything having to be remote? Because I haven't noticed it. I think Mm. things that have been directly produced during isolation Mm -hmm. or quarantine. Yeah. DreamWorks is fantastic. It's not uh, just as good or not better than ever because people are (laughs) grinding so hard to work. DreamWorks is about to finish its second feature film completely remote being done remotely that's one that's, that's crazy it's wild I, does that make you weary that they might switch to that kind of format rather than have an office space a little bit i think that uh a lot of the a lot of people that work there feel that way that they're a little nervous i, yeah. I know for you know there's like a handful of people that prefer it this way they, they like being at home and uh they're like a friend of mine who's a story artist there he's like if i could just do this forever this would be great he prefers just working from his home office but yeah. Just like Jess was saying, the I think the animators as a whole, because we're such a performance-based p- part of the production, we thrive off of being in person, and we we often act things out to each other in person. And um, again, just because because our job is to be entertainers, uh, a huge thing for me, especially, it it's such a specific thing when you show your shot for the first time to the director. You really, it, you really get a lot of information just watching the director's reaction <laughs> live. I can't and even you, imagine how horrifying that must you, be. You sit there and you, you're like, okay, because you're, you're trying to do so much in your first show of your shot. You're yeah. trying to solve the story math in, that's going on in that shot. You're trying to communicate as clearly and you're trying to be entertaining. And, what and, are your, and what's your advice for someone doing that? Like, I think expectations are all, I mean, is your expectation, do you expect to be completely ripped apart when you give that first yeah. shot? 
I think that really you're, well, it depends on how you feel personally about the status of your shot when you show it. Sure, but, but still, I mean, the first mm -hmm. shot with a yeah. visionary director, and most of you guys have worked for some pretty visionary directors. Mm -hmm. So it's like... I think that it's, I mean, my, I guess my advice would be, be prepared for anything. Yeah, and do you remember your first shot? Yeah, yeah, I still remember shot my first shot. Talk about yeah. it. Uh, but, well, my first shot as an as a character animator was on how to train your dragon two. Um, but I, I really think of my first shot as a character animator and on the angry birds movie. <laughs> that was when, just because that was when I was in control of the whole shot for the first time. And, mm. uh, and I had a huge amount of respect for the director as well. I, he was one of my animation heroes. So I was just like, Oh my God, what's he going to, I hope he laughs. You know, usually, especially if you're working in like comedy, a comedy film you hope that the director laughs at your shot you hope that yeah. it's doing what it's supposed to do yeah um and really that's that's the ultimate thing whether it's funny or supposed to be sad or serious or terrifying you you hope they react the way that they're meant to react <laughs> like getting your ideas conveyed across i think if i could give any advice to someone who is brand new either to feature to game to television don't put too much um uh, invest too much emotion into your first shot my first shot in feature film was on storks and it was so simple it was a very simple shot of a character looking and i was on that shot for two weeks because yeah. i couldn't get it and i i was scared i was sick and mm -hmm. the director the animation director and the animation supervisor are some of the most amazing people you'll ever meet, Josh Beveridge and Doug Sweetland. Um, they both worked on, uh, Josh worked on Spider-Verse as the animation. Yeah, I know their name. I'm like, how do, I know how do I know these names? And Doug Sweetland worked on Presto uh, yes. with the hat and the With the bunny, bunny and the magician. He was the director. Yes, he did. Very yeah. kind, very well-receiving. And they and were well very encouraging. People too. I mean, that's, that sounds intimidating to me. That's those are such well-respected. And, and Doug Sweetland is a very, very good animator. Yes. He he's been he was an animator at Pixar for years and yeah. did some of the most famous shots there as well. So, and it was an unmemorable shot. No one will remember that shot specifically from the movie. But I could not get it to the way they wanted it. But I thought that was the end of my career. <laughs> I was like, I'm never gonna. I'm going back to TV. Maybe, maybe someday I can tell what, my what have those kind people. of thoughts because it's interesting because it's like we all fail like all of us yeah. here are creative we literally I feel like we find what we're good at by just consistently failing if you're if you're creative at least because yeah. when you're creative you try everything so I want to interject really quick and, and talk about mm -hmm. imposter syndrome because I I graduated with a degree in graphic design and mm -hmm. so it's just there's this constant like, oh, I feel great about what my work is. And then I get down, I get these really mm -hmm. low lows about like, do I even really want to do this? Like I could just go, go do marketing or something. And it's true. The only thing I can say to that is um, learning how to deal with failure comes with experience. It's, and when I first started out, I, I would burn out. I would get nervous easy, um, more easily. It still happens, but um I'm okay with it now. I'm very better. I'm much better at receiving criticism. I'm okay with knowing if I really don't nail a shot or it's not what the director wanted, I know often I'll still have another opportunity 
I'll just have to work that much harder. And it happens. It does. But you'll, you learn the tools to how to cope with it. Um, So it's okay. If you don't feel, if you don't feel like you're supposed to be there, you are, you're exactly where you're supposed to be. Um, And it's hard to accept that when you're new, but Mm. that will, the acceptance will come. I think that's amazing. Do you guys think, where does 2D animate? I had two questions left for you guys specifically. Then again, anything you wanted to cover on your own, we can cover. Um, But the two questions to give you a flash forward, we're going to be the place that 2D hand-drawn animation has moving forward in general. Mm-hmm. And then I wanted to know each of your top five animated movies of all time, because nice. so and that's a hard, that's, <laughs> and I know that's hard because we mm-hmm. each, if you, you have a best list and a favorite mm-hmm. list. And yeah. I'm assuming, so, so like with the former, as we move forward into this new age of animation, you know, mm-hmm. starting with the, the mid nineties and 3D rendering and CG animation, what's the place that's the 2d animation has because for me and i'll speak as a non-animator first and then get your take it almost is like if you it can be done well it feels special because to a lot of people who aren't as aware of the processes they look at 2d animation in the modern era as the cop out or the budgeted version of animating and i'm like well that's not true <laughs> so they couldn't do computers so it's the cheap version i'm like it's almost harder to it's like, like the reverse of that <laughs> yeah everything can draw it's like because like the humanity evolves with efficiency we progress towards making things efficient and technologically shareable and doable in terms of pipeline but like when we have miyazaki releasing a film like the, the wind rises still amongst mm-hmm. films like up in toy story three I'm like, what's the place of 2D animation totally opinionated from the two of you? I, you know, I, I guess my response to that is two parts. And the first one is the first part of that would be like, you know, 3D animation, when it got big in the worldwide animation landscape, I think that it started as a, you know, this is sort of a, a dirty word but like it it almost started as a stylistic gimmick where mm. it was a new way of doing animation and seeing animation that no one had seen before when toy story came out it was mind-blowing because it was just and that not only is it a fabulous movie like yeah, thank that, god that. it's a good movie too but just from a aesthetic standpoint it, people just couldn't believe what they were looking at. It was like, holy cow, what is that? Truly, and, truly. And that hung on for a while. And un- unfortunately, you know, 2D animation, especially like it had reached such a, a height of technical beauty at that moment in time, you know? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, you still had, you, you had films like... Uh, like Lilo and Stitch coming out and Tarzan was happening I mean, around that, that time. In that era, it was literally Princess Mononoke, Aladdin, mm-hmm. Lilo and Stitch, yeah. Mulan, Pocahontas. When CG animation was catching on and, and when those two things were sort of happening side by side, um, it is funny to think that like a film like Tarzan was happening around the same time as Ice Age. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. and it's just sort of like a super sucky collateral damage that um you know disney feature animation ended up dying because they just for they you know 
it was a tre- it was a trending thing at that at that time. Mm-hmm. That CG animation was just doing better because that's what kids wanted to look at, and it was an aesthetic that had caught on. And unfortunately, at that time, um, 2D started to look like old animation to kids. And like when kids would look at it, they're like, "Oh no, that's kind of like, you know, that's that's an era that I'm done with." Um, so my, the, I guess that I think we associate that as like the current generation grew up in the console era of video games, where as mm-hmm. things become more 3D and hyper realized, whether mm-hmm. they're stylized or not, with the direction of the art, as yeah. we become more 3D and more fully realized as far as budget goes, we consider yeah. that to be more impressive. Whereas like I'm like, dude, I can look at and whether it's gaming or film, I'm like Undertale is one of the most impressively animated and beautiful games of the last ten years, and it's mm-hmm. and it's and it's sprite animation, it's like yeah, eight bit looking, yeah. But it's so it's a, it's a thing where oh sorry what? No, so I said I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, it's and that and now I think now we've moved beyond that, thank goodness, and it's less about that and. It's 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 almost th- that has now happened to that generation of CG where it's like that aesthetic where it's like 3D hyper real looking animation has now become a little passe mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we're now in the era of stylization and it's 3D kind of trying to imitate 2D yes. and it's now all blown open so I think that every every sort of medium now has a fair shot at it and we we yeah. saw this like there was like films like Persepolis, for example, that came out around 2010. Yes. And that was a 2D animation when it was like spitting in the face of 3D and being like, no, like mm-hmm. it doesn't have to always look super duper real. You know, mm-hmm. um, exactly. it's funny because that film came out right around the time of How to Train Your Dragon, which that film, How to Train Your Dragon was was trying to look very real, but more in like a Lord of the Rings way mm-hmm. than yeah. in a than in like a Monsters Incorporated kind of way. And and so, yeah, I think that 2D definitely has a major future. It's, it's, uh, you know, Princess and the Frog didn't do too hot, but uh, that doesn't mean that something like that can't happen again. I I think it's because we're taught, when we look at games, how right now some of the biggest games out, graphical fidelity isn't as much as important as art direction and nuance and just the design of what we're doing. Like when I when I think of the games that have impressed me the most with style, to call it vaguely, mm-hmm. I think of Hollow Knight. I think of Play Dead's Inside. Yeah. And I, I think of Cuphead. Mm-hmm. All of these, and Undertale. These are all sprite games. They're 2D rendered games. And I'm just like, that's fascinating to me. And film will probably get there because the technology had to evolve. And as a bunch of plebs, we think that that is when things are more higher quality mm-hmm. as they evolve into this 3d space with more advanced render times but then you look at like something with Miyazaki has not stopped and many other companies have not stopped with their 2d animation and i'm like well mm-hmm. that's going to come back like that will never go away i think it's just like a weird back and forth cycle as we innovate we adjust and then we realize and then we accumulate everybody you know yeah. it, it's rather fascinating so i mean jessica are you fully on board with what david just said as far as the because i mean i I pretty much agree with that i think that's i think what he said it really hits it on the head it's very well said um especially with the emergence of new technologies um 2d has been able to make a comeback in a really big way especially in television um where you can hit 
uh, certain qualities that you couldn't hit before without sacrificing a lot of time to get to that quality. But I think it's huge. You can tell great stories through short episodes. I think 2D has a very, um, very big future still in television through anime, through American TV, especially um, like Steven Universe. Steven Universe is so good. Rick and Morty. Rick and Morty is fantastic. I think 2D, well, if you look at the most popular television shows, most of them are 2D animated shows. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, Even you universe, know. Adventure, Adventure. I discovered Adventure Time during this pandemic and mm-hmm. I was blown away. Blown away. Where I, you could, I love watching an animated show where you could almost tell mm-hmm. that the directors or the supervisors wrote on the script, go crazy to the mm-hmm. end. Because I'm like, how the hell did they manage to put that into their pipeline? Like, Adventure Time, especially as a show in the later seasons where you see them just almost trying to outdo themselves with the animation. But I, I agree with you. I think, mm-hmm. and I noticed something Ryan and I both noticed, noticed is you guys, do you, are you guys gamers? Do you guys game? Because you both, both your eyes Because oh, yeah. reacted to Undertale and <laughs> oh, yeah. Hollow Knight. Well, we mentioned Hollow Knight and you both just were like, yeah. I was like, do they mm-hmm. play Hollow Knight? Like we, <laughs> we, we hear, me and Ryan ex- extremely <laughs> appreciate good art direction in video games. I mean, from all the way back to Wind Waker and Mario Galaxy to now Hollow Knight and Cuphead, it's just like in Play Dead's inside, we really, really appreciate unique art styles in video gaming. I think it's funny, just by coincidence, this year, David's played Undertale. We both played Undertale. Undertale And Mario Galaxy. So when you hit it, I was like, oh. only is the only video game the Pope has played, so. <laughs> what was yeah. it? How, which one? Undertale? Matt Pat, who is in charge of the YouTube channel The Game Theorist, visited okay. the Vatican to visit the Pope and <laughs> he got to give him a gift. And the gift he chose to give him was Undertale. Um, oh, for him to play through nice to, under, to understand the many different levels of humanity and connection and art that can yeah. go into the game. And I think that's fantastic because Undertale is. I think one of the best games ever made. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but I mean, again, Hall, him and I, Ryan and I, have both gotten into Hollow Knight recently, so that's why it resonated even extra hard for us to see you guys kind of get wide-eyed because <laughs> that game is all about art direction and animation. It's very good music. Mm-hmm. Very good music, especially. Yeah. So when it comes to your guys' top five, yeah, to a top five, and mm-hmm. I need you to define things. We can either do it this way if we have time and you know the list. Mm-hmm. Whenever I people ask me a top five, I'm like, you want my favorite or my best? Hmm. As hmm. my opinion, the best movie of all time is Citizen Kane, but my favorite movie of all time is The Fellowship of the Ring. So it's like those are two different things. So hmm. it's like when you're giving your top five animated movies of all time, maybe elaborate a bit. Like, is it based on cultural relevance? Is it based on the nostalgia, like David and the Lion King, or Jessica hmm. and the Iron Giant, and things Could of that? Could it be not films? Could it be? Of course. Could it be TV as well? Projects. I think top mm-hmm. five animated works because yeah. I think any medium should be open to this because again, some games truly deserve to be in here as well. Mm-hmm. So especially as you guys being in the industry, but I mean, film's an easier thing to go. I, I mean, I know like my favorite animated film of all time is The Iron Giant. Mm-hmm. My top animated film of all time is extremely hard to decide because we go into the weeds of like, 
It could be Snow White. It could be Sleeping Beauty because they invented a technique of how to animate with their glass burning. And mm-hmm. we could go into Isle of Dogs and go into Wallace and Gromit and the Curse of the Were-Rabbit and Tim Burton's accomplishments. Mm-hmm. It's like, top. it's really hard when we try to be objective and we try to be filmic of like, who is the, the you know, Mount Washington of animators. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just want to know where the, t- if you guys had to, if you were dying, and you had a legacy, or if you had to go to a, a deserted island and you wanted five animated works to represent you. All right, so we'll just get into your top five and then anything you want to talk about before we close out, because at this point, I want it to be your time because I know you guys have plans at like 4 p.m. Sure. Um, sorry. Let, don't be sorry at all. We can literally do a follow-up. Like, we're so chill. Like, I had somebody on... We had him on like three times. He was an author who wrote about mm. Stanley Kubrick, and we had so much mm. fun with him. Oh, right. I saw We're it. Like, I didn't listen to it, but I mm. saw it. You saw it? Yeah. 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 He, he came on a bunch of times, and it was probably – it's my personal favorite podcast we've done because he came on, and we just went deep dive into his movies. And like I'm like, I'll have anybody on 50 times. We don't have a view a viewership. We just want to connect. Mm-hmm. So sure. let's go. You guys can both decide who goes first. And it can be – and it's not – End all, be all, because my top five changes every week. It's yeah, but it's we always when you that. ask that question. It's about twenty minutes later where you're like, mm, yeah, that, that, I changed my mind. And but, well, diff- it's difficult because like I think the proper top five should be on categorical of like what resonates with me from my childhood. What was the yeah. time I realized, wow, animation can be impressive? What was my mm-hmm. the first time I saw stop motion, three D, two D, like. Yeah. It's kind of like the YouTube channel Cinefix, if you've seen their video. Yeah, I love Cinefix. Yeah. They don't they don't do top tens as in ten being the worst, one being the best. Yeah. They yeah. do it based categorically. And yeah. That's how I like to do things. And it's like with animation, I don't know. It resonates with me so much subjectively that I almost throw all that out of the window and I'm like, these are just the films that <laughs> if I were to go to a desert a deserted island, these are the animated films I want to watch for the rest of my days. And I, yeah. I, I could name them right now. I know them. Like I have to write them. I'm writing them down on my phone because I think for me, it's not top film. It's always just ones that I could watch constantly. Exactly. And like I that's, I kind of want more of that because all of yeah. us here could end up at the same answers when we talk objectively. Mm-hmm. It's like we could talk about how good Finding Nemo was and the realism of nature. We could talk about Wally, mm-hmm. we could talk about Spirited Away and Wallace and Gromit and Night yeah. Before Christmas and Wes Anderson's Fantastic mm-hmm. Mr. Fox. But I want to know like, what makes us unique in our preferences? So mm-hmm. either two of you can go first. And if me and Ryan want to interject, I don't know if Ryan, you know yours, but I know mine. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I know my uh, animated films. Again, Iron Giant with a bullet is my number sure. one. Sure. <laughs> bullet. Do you, want, do you want to go first? No, I would love for no. you guys to go first. Okay. <laughs> All right. I have 5.5. Um, just because <laughs> the other one is something I always watched as a kid, but it's more for a funny um mine is definitely the iron giant uh i love the style i love the style i love the story i love kiki's delivery service because it's the first time i saw the use of animation without sound and so much sound adds to um the feeling Mm -hmm. of your emotions and all of that and the moment where everything goes silent i'll never forget are we, are we going five, four, three, two, one with your list right now? Like, so you said five. Oh, um, I pro- I'm probably going from like my top to my low. Like, they're like all. No I love them all equally. 
I don't think there's an Iron, ultimate. You had Iron Giant saying. is the one that resonated. Like that was you said that first. That was pretty impressive. Why? Just Why always if someone if someone asks me what's your favorite animated movie, it's almost just become uh like an uh, what's it called an instinctive thing. I just like the Iron Giant because it didn't look like Disney, so it's one of the few. Uh, movies that wasn't an anime and it was a movie that it looked so unique to me and yeah. I loved it and I it thought failure. it was a failure it was the movie literally oh flopped. and it makes me terribly sad for that but again that's but where that's I started to find expression. out like the film literally was directed by are animated by mostly interns and Brad Bird at Warner Brothers and yeah. they gave it no money and blockbuster video and Hollywood video gave it its resurgence because he wrote I, which is great you. Yeah, and it's something and that I've come to learn. Said Kiki's, which is fantastic. I think that's yeah. Oh, I, I, I love Kiki. thing. Kiki's delivery <laughs> service is my favorite Miyazaki film, which is kind of controversial to say, but it's my favorite mm-hmm. one. I don't think it's. Con- I, I, it's People are always like, "Have you like, seen it away?" You like what you okay? like, bro. Yeah, delivery no service resonates with me so hard. Like, mm-hmm. it's I t- loved uh, Sleeping Beauty because I thought it was moving art. Yeah. I love, uh, it's how they made it look like a tapestry. I loved it. Nice. I didn't know at the time why I liked it. And now I know. Now I know why I enjoyed it a lot more. Um, That's, awesome. That's a great pick. I really like, uh, these two kind of go hand in hand, but Rockadoodle and The Secret of Nim. They are... You're Don- Nim! Yeah, they're Don Bluth movies. And I like them because of the Bluth style. So, you know, I could... I could put all of his movies in together, but I, I, I like them a lot. And a very undersold one was Rockadoodle because it's a movie that I saw as a kid. Rockadoodle. It's it's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's okay. Sure. Um, and then for uh, for one more, uh, it's uh, sorry, uh, Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood and uh demon uh, demon hunter um i can't say it i will butcher the name but it's a movie or it's an anime that emerged from a manga last year and the much like brotherhood some of the action scenes i don't know how it blows my mind how someone was able to draw that forced perspective Mm -hmm. and i thought it was just beautiful just beautiful um, and then as a side note, the movie that I watched the most as a kid was called My Little Pony Escape from Midnight Castle. <laughs> I kind of like your side note of like... It's, I, it's what I watched I want, when I, want, I was I young. Two, I want two side notes when you guys do this. The movie you watched the most as a kid that was your kid movie. And then yeah. as an adult, what you truly think is a movie that is the highest of standard. And again, that is subjective. I want it to be based on like where you're like, I can't imagine having partaken in that film like for me right now i haven't i'm not an animator but isla dogs would be that pick where i'm like i can't mm-hmm. even imagine working on that film so like mm-hmm. what would your what would be your pick Jessica, for the film that would be almost like the heavenly gates of like, i can't even it's so impressive to look at i can't even imagine animating on the film Ooh. i know that's all i know that's pressurous so we, we, well we, we'll loop back to it but it's probably a Ghibli film just because when they're drawn, no, uh, yeah. well, it's hard to say because this is a go-to answer, but it's true. Akira, uh, they drew everything. And I don't, like the backgrounds, they drew the animated backgrounds. And I'm like, I don't know how you did that. And I think I it's wonderful. What's, what's Akira animated at frame-wise, frame rate? 
because it's it's like super it's high. For... It's sixty, isn't it? It's it's a well. Animes are usually done on twelve. Uh, like, well, this is it's um, done on twelve, but I think in, in terms of the processing on a Blu-ray disc, it's like a sixty-frame output, which is crazy. I don't know. I've never seen it on Blu-ray. I saw it on VHS only. And uh, we, were, we were doing I, research on it the other day, and we were like seeing sixty-frame output. We're like, that cannot be it, right? Because that'd be wild looking. Well, I know that they did it on ones a lot. Oh, okay, because I I would have had to Google this. I'm not sure. It yeah. looked great. Again, <laughs> but it's animated on twos yes, and threes, I think. Twos and threes, even but though, I think they've done the, a few ones, haven't they? Probably like, somewhere in the Yeah. We gotta. That's a whole other conversation. We'll have to have some yeah. time in the future when we yeah. have it on twos and part two. I didn't even know what that was until I found my love for Spider Verse because they did both. What about mm. you, David? What is your top five in no particular order or your order of choice of <laughs> all time? Well, uh, I mean, I have to include from my whole thing earlier. Lion King is in my top five, and it's because of just for at the time, it was just its epic scale to me. It just felt like nothing I had seen or heard before. Yeah. Um, it's the thing that made me want to get into animation. And then, uh, uh, as far as like uh, legacy goes, I think um, Pinocchio is in my top five, I think. And the reason I choose Pinocchio is because to me, Pinocchio is one of those films, especially for how long ago it was made and how it was still one of the first feature length animated films ever made, that it encompasses such a range of emotion where, you have everything from like, you know, you have the the heartfelt moments and like the the homey moments of when you wish upon a star, where it's like extraordinarily sort of fantastical. Yeah. Then you have, uh, sort of like scary and and scary and like um frightening moments with Monster of the Whale, and these you know the belly of the beast literally moments of like. They feel that's like too when you watch them. The emotion that comes off the page. Yeah, and it's it's crazy to look at both technically, but then like it's this terrifying scale of Monstro just swallowing up the main characters, and then you have moments that are still legitimately horrifying when he goes to Pleasure Island, and the kids turn into to donkeys, and you <laughs> literally have what's his face? Le- Is it Lampwick? Who yeah. is the cigar smoking? You know, yeah. like, ah, come with me, Pinocchio. And he, you know, it it pans away from him. And you see the the shadow of him turning into a donkey. And then it's kids kids in, in like, jail screaming for their mothers. And it's like, oh, my God, it's so freaking, freaking scary. <laughs> it's fucking um, crazy. It's like watching yeah. the fireflies. I'm like, how is the kids? Yeah. Oh. yeah. And so all of that is in the same movie to me. And it's just like, wow, all of this happens in the same film. Like, yeah. and you have songs like uh what is it a uh, um an actor's life for me or whatever it is mm. along with i've got no strings and i got no strings yeah exactly. yeah and so all that's happened it's just crazy to me that that's all, all one movie mm-hmm. and then um so then another one is the incredibles uh yeah resignation the, there that's on my top yeah, five yeah the incredibles is just fabulous it's it was one of those things where it's like Pixar had done so many great movies up until that moment, and they brought in Brad Bird to shake things up. And right after Iron in, Giant, dude. Yeah, and he Such does does a like mid century spy action film with with Michael Giacchino. Yeah, the, the score. <laughs> yeah, which was his first film, by the way. 
That was it's, he had never <laughs> never done a feature film up to that moment. So and look at what a, he did. Like, yeah, and then he yeah just knocks a home run. Uh, so that one's amazing and and also that's another one where it's like it's it was a stylistic departure for for pixar where it was like oh yeah it was their first time it was the first film that was ready pg it was the first film that broke the two hour mark and Mm -hmm. this was i I think when i talk to people i often talk to younger students when we were at when we were still students at the university of cincinnati and dap about our animated preferences and i would often talk rave about the incredibles and most mm-hmm. of these young ass gen z kids are like <laughs> superhero films are so washed out I'm like dude this film came out in 2004 yeah this like is before you know, there was nothing i'm like he took james bond and like hitchcockian storytelling yeah. and mixed it with the superhero genre and added like political influence to it and i'm like you yeah. have no idea how insane that was for me to watch the nine-year-old it's yeah. really unique because it's a family film as well it's no singular superhero movie it's how do you operate as a unit yeah which is beautiful it's a sitcom like that's what i like about brad film brad bird's film when he has true creative control like the iron giant was very similar where everybody was fully fleshed out and similar to miyazaki you couldn't there's true villains and true protagonists but it's like you can understand everybody's viewpoints and that's what was great about the incredibles i could i could do a two-hour podcast on why the incredibles is a (laughs) special film i mean i really (laughs) love that movie that's my favorite pixar movie of all time so nice yeah me too so yeah you only named a couple so yeah what's three few uh (laughs) another one uh nightmare before christmas and uh, elaborate because a lot of people so i've never seen the full nightmare before christmas before i need to watch Mm. it's it's easily my favorite stop motion animated and then um wow but uh i the reason i picked that one out in particular is because that's a film that to me is where all the creative leadership on that film in my opinion was operating at maximum awesome and uh and by that i mean like you had you know henry selick directing um with and he's he's a great visionary stop motion animator and director and, yeah. along with uh i think bo welsh worked on that who's an incredible production designer on nightmare i think on nightmare because he's he works a lot with both henry and um and uh tim burton hmm. then you have tim burton who you know wrote this story and and sort of sprung it out of a short film with, or a short story idea of his. And then of course you have Danny Elfman who is, is amazing. And then I think he did some of his best work of his life on that film. So I think yeah. it's really Danny just Elfman like. In the nineties, it was just like from yeah. 89 to 99, whether like most of it I know is Batman and like. Mm-hmm. Beetlejuice. And, so you guys are animators. One of my favorite things of all time is the Batman, the animated series. Just, just oh, like, yeah. yeah. Just oh, like. Wow. I would tattoo it on my body. Like I love <laughs> that series so much. But like Danny Elfman and what he's done with other works too, like care, continuing that like edgy kind of vibe mm-hmm. is really impressive. Well, it's funny because it's Nightmare. Um, you know, up until that moment, he especially around that era, he was mostly known for doing sort of dark. He self-identified as a as somebody who made dark dark opera he used to say yeah. and dark dark old phantasmagory style theater and uh and so when he think when he he's been quoted as saying that like he looks at nightmares it's his it's his operetta it's his opera piece 
and um and then it just comes to life in animation yeah but that so that's why i think of nightmare is on my on my top movies it's it's i think it's just everyone who worked on that movie was doing the best work of their careers and i agree because almost every frame it was it was like they were trying to make the best frame in their career like when mm. you look at i again I, I said i haven't finished when i say i haven't finished nightmare I haven't sat down from beginning to end and watched mm-hmm. it for some reason. I don't know why. I've seen that movie in, in some sense from like 17 times. I've sat down mm-hmm. and watched it. I've studied it. I think almost every single shot, kind of like what Wes Anderson does now with like Isle of Dogs and Forward, they were trying to make, you could just, iconic shots. I mean, mm-hmm. I think one of, the most, I, the, the, one of the most iconic shots of all time is him walking on that mountaintop, mm-hmm. moonlit background. Yeah, and so I, I fully agree that that when you think when most people think of stop motion, I think of the Nightmare Before Christmas, I, and mm-hmm. I think there's a reason why. And it, was that your three? I don't. How many do we? That's four. <laughs> four. Yeah. And then I wrote down a couple. And it's tough. Mm-hmm. It's tough for me to decide on what the yeah, fifth one just, is. Well, let's just keep it open. Let's go. But uh, you know, um, I mean, the thing is, is I, I as a kid, because the thing I can't deny is like when I was in, you know, from like age eight to like age 14 i was a huge bluthy like i loved don bluth movies and i for the same reason i was like wow it looks so different from disney it has a very different tone from disney yeah. mm-hmm. like all dogs go to heaven um like for me uh, all dogs and secret of nim were my two big yeah. like don bluth movies that i couldn't stop watching and, uh, and I just, I loved the aesthetic of them. I thought they were so cool and they felt grittier to me. And like in All Dogs Go to Heaven, there's a sequence where he goes to hell. It's <laughs> All Dogs Go to Heaven is fucking awesome, dude. Like, <laughs> that movie, is, if you're a child and you watch that movie, it's one yeah. of those Disney films that feels like it didn't fit the Disney formula and that's why it's so good. Mm-hmm. The This is sort of a side note, but like, um, so what one of my assignments that was given to me when I was in graduate school was I was, they, they told me that I needed to go out and interview a director of animation um, for their archives. For the, it was, I went to UCLA, so the UCLA archives. And um, so at, I, this is, it was like sort of lazy, but sort of not, <laughs> I'd like to say. Um, I chose Gil Kennan because Gil Kennan had very recently graduated from our program and that, and then was directing the movie Monster House. And, Ooh, um, I love that movie, personally. And I, I chose him because I'm like, well, I know that Gil's going to have a really interesting perspective on animation because he's making a film that doesn't look like normal animation and his student film definitely didn't look like normal animation. It was really weird. And uh, him and I talked about the Booth movies in our interview. And he ha- and so I, I only bring him up because I, I want to give him credit for having said this, but he I talked to him a little bit about and and he told me that he was trying to do this with Monster House, where we talked about Secret of Nim and that was a jumping off point for the whole Bluth series. And yeah, he was like he's like, you know what I really appreciate about the Don Bluth films is that he sort of he sort of found he was using animation as a way to like introduce kids to like a much richer tone of filmmaking than they would normally be exposed to because yeah he was like i he goes almost every don bluth film hides an adult film inside of a children's film 
and on. he's like it's it's framed as a children's story and there's like music numbers and everything and yet there's t- terrifying adult film stuff going on inside of these movies and he was he tried to do that with monster house as well and uh and it's true it's like we said it's like you have in all dogs go to heaven you have like the musical sequence of like you know the more you give the more you're going to get which is like the most hokey cheesy music sequence and then charlie goes to hell as well (laughs) like i felt like that era disney didn't often lean into that because like for me like i grew up on watching batman and justice league and stuff where the cartoons felt all ages but disney wasn't Mm -hmm. quite there but then Mm -hmm. like some of the others like what you're talking about those films on the the lesser known end for lack of a better word definitely mm-hmm. hit on those themes so that's yeah. what i find interesting so your number one is somewhere around like a conglomerate of like mm-hmm. on like what you would consider well and i think lion king also does that i think lion king is a animated kids film that has very adult moments in it you know yeah, um sure. everything from from simba dying to the terrifying elephant graveyard to the you know, be prepared is, is not your average musical sequence, you know? So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny the Oh, the, the, go ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. The name of my thesis that I did with, with Gil was called the Pixar effect, but I was doing, I was, Pixar? it was based, it was like, that's sort of my, the title of my thesis was irrelevant, but it's based on, another guy's thesis that was called the Disney effect. And What's that? Like, I've never heard of that before. I think I've yeah. Read the Disney effect was something that was, uh, people bring this up in terms of like, like the Walt Disney company doing what it did in the, in the thirties and the forties is, was a lot of people said was a blessing and a curse. And to skip ahead for just for one second would be like, I think we're out of this era now, but back in the nineties, especially it was scary because people say like, yeah, it's awesome that the Disney company was able to basically bring to the world the idea of a f- feature-length animated, you know, film, um, which had never been done. But it also sort of put animated filmmaking into this box of if you're going to do it, it's going to have songs in it, and it's going to be like for check, kids, kind of check the boxes. Like we we have a demographic. Yeah. Right. And, and yeah. so then it, it became this thing of like, um, like Gil Kennan in my interview, I think he said it best where he said, I don't blame the people, I don't blame Disney, I blame the people that tried to imitate Disney, where they looked at the animated film and they said, well, the only way we're going to be successful with this is if we just make something that's similar to a Disney film. Um, and thank goodness, I think now after everything, we've come very far with, with animated filmmaking that I think we're out of that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but yeah, for a while, that was a little challenging I like to do anything that's straight. Like your guys' list both speaks to kind of like the styles you resonate with and what influences you. Because for me, because since I don't animate, a lot of it is mostly just from childhood resonance. It's like, it's things, and the, there's probably two that have broken through post-adolescence and those mean, I would say if, if an animated movie can make your top five list out of your childhood, that shows that it's one of the best movies ever made. Because people do associate animation for some reason as resonating easier with your brain when you're younger. And as you're older, if an animated film can break through that mold, if you study movies and study cinema, 
Mm. Like for Spider-Verse and Isle of Dogs and anything Miyazaki has done to literally make me cry and change my mind um, how mm. I view movies. Like what are the first two animated movies for both of you that made you each cry? Like what, like, from, like for me, it was Up. Pixar's Up was the first film ever to make me cry. And it was an animated movie. And then going back as an adult now, if I watch movies like Lilo and Stitch and Finding Nemo, I, I'm crying in them. Like they mean so much to me. So like, what were the first animated films that made you each cry? Do you know those? Lion King. <laughs> I will never not cry at The Lion King. Wow. Um, and it's a movie that I've said I'll only see once. Um, and I have seen it. It was Grave of the Fireflies. Oh, um, I, it, I've never known such sorrow as a young person watching that movie going, oh, I like Hayao Miyazaki. Watch oh, it young? Watch that movie young? Quite young. I didn't fully realize what it was about. And yeah, that then movie I watched it. That not a movie at all. The movie's very tragic. It's, tr it's, there's no happiness in that movie. <laughs> so even if I think about it, I'll cry. <laughs> it's, uh, that movie will that movie will get me going. Well, the best movie. What about you, David? Does, has any ever animated movie ever made you cry? Oh, yeah. I, mm -hmm. I don't know about f first, you know? Like, I, I don't know if I can think of one that first made me cry, but... Uh, Interesting. Hmm, I think one of the big ones is uh, Inside Out for me. Mm. I mean, I know that's very recent. I've only but... seen it once. I, would, I need to see it again. Oh, know? man. Inside Out is so amazing. And it's just, you know, there's... That's one where it's hard to even think about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I it's shouldn't talk about too much. Like, I don't think of Inside Out that often. I need to rewatch. Like for me, like nowadays, I'm with you guys. Like if you if you love movies, almost anything can make you emotional. And mm -hmm. when I saw, I was going through a particularly rough time when Spider Verse came out, and mm -hmm. I watched that movie five times in theaters, mostly by myself, just because it made me feel something in general. It's a movie that could bring me to tears. As a lover of Spider Man, superhero films, and animation alike, I'm like, this film makes me cry. Mm -hmm. like the iron giant like my top five is like the iron giant the incredibles toy story mm -hmm. almost a legacy because i most people say their most quotable movies like pulp fiction or the big lebowski or something i'm like dude i'm quoting toy story one way too often and no one understands it and it's very hysterical and and then uh, in recent years a couple of miyazaki films within the last few months actually have really broken i mean like when I watched Spirited Away, it like broke my brain as mm -hmm. to what like could make me feel emotion while watching an animated film. So, and then Lilo and Stitch is like probably my number two or my number one because I grew up watching that. And mm -hmm. It's funny. I think animation is difficult more so than live action when we try to choose a top five because it's not just how it resonates with us. It's because there's something to appreciate in the beauty of the art direction. And that's important. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else, you guys, before we wrap it up for this? I'm sure we'll meet again and do this again sometime. Is there anything else you guys want to touch on or would love to talk about um, on this on our, our first podcast here? If I had more time, I would. Sadly, <laughs> yeah. I, I'll have to duck out soon. But that's the thing. Um, well, we can do it again, guys. Like we can do it again, and we can set like we don't. It does not have to be three hours like today. I mean, I think, <laughs> thank you so much for taking so much time to talk with us. I mean, it yeah. flew by. Me too. Yes. Yeah. Thank you for such meaningful questions. It was so nice to see both, meet both of you. Like, thank you. Yeah. No, like you. I just thought you guys were fascinating from the moment I heard about you both. 
Um, and there's so much of your career I would love to dive into. And usually it's more formal. We're in a studio. It's not during the pandemic. But I'd love to meet up again and do this mm -hmm. again sometime and like yeah. elaborate. Talk about the I, I want to talk about less. Yeah. I want to talk about less formal things. I want to know about like your guys' cocktail culture phenomenon. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, we can get into topics. That Buy don't more rum. Uh, I'd <laughs> yeah. love to. I'd love to talk about Imagineering. I'd oh, love yeah. to talk about Blue Sky. That's the thing. We should. We can. We can put it on a schedule. And David. <laughs> There's no, David kept apologizing. I'm so sorry, I'm replying late. I'm like, bro, we are all so busy. <laughs> time I don't even notice you're replying late, so you don't even have to say it. Um, we can schedule another one. I mean, but we can make it shorter because mm -hmm. it's hard to do a three hour session, but we can do like 30 minutes to one hour sessions. And sure. End up well, I'm sure you'll cut this down. Yeah, into please do. As well. I'm so sorry. <laughs> we cut this down into one thing and then we could do like a couple more 30 minute sessions and make mm -hmm. it into one episode. And that'd be, I, sure. I would love to talk about Disney and I would love to talk about the two of you guys with what it's like actually making it in the industry. And mm -hmm. I, really, I really want to touch on survival in an industry that is so intimidating oh, yeah. So, yeah that'd be great for me, I, I find it very inspiring to talk to people who i feel like i can connect with as human beings that are doing something that i find so admirable you know sure. i would love to talk about that so great Excellent. you guys have been fantastic and we can dive into pretty much much more things in the future we can hash out yeah. those details so for sure. thank well, you so much you guys are awesome human beings do you guys yeah. want to give so when it comes to last before we leave Mm -hmm. um, what are some things you're working on now that on the record you can promote? Like, do you guys have social media channels or any campaigns you want people to turn to? And and sometimes when I ask people this question, it's not even their personal projects that they're working with. Sometimes people are like, hey, wear a mask. It's COVID-19. Mm -hmm. Just be a good human being. So whatever you want to say to close things out is sure. up to you. Yeah. yeah, be safe. Be safe, <laughs> yeah. Take care of each other. Yeah. See um, Vivo. Oh yeah. <laughs> She's working on a film called Vivo. It, it's been greenlit, so I'm working on a film called Vivo. It's wrapping up in the next few weeks. Um, it's going to be hopefully out in the summer. It's Ooh. a wonderful film. Um, it, Lin Manuel Miranda has a great hand in it. It's got two fantastic directors. So for 20, 2021 summer. Twenty twenty one. There, they have not released trailers yet. Um, but just... it's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry, I should say it follows a young kinkachu um, in. That's Cuba. an animal. <laughs> it's yeah. It's a, it follows a young kinkachu who has kinkachu who has to travel to Miami. So it's great. <laughs> it's adorable and funny and beautiful. And how about you? I'm working on a. We're doing a, a feature adaptation of the kids' graphic novel series called The Bad Guys. Uh, it's a popular seven book series, I think, that follows the tale of all the all of the characters that are usually associated in in fiction with being bad guys. So the big bad wolf, I love um, that. The shark, like a shark, basically like the shark from Jaws, a tarantula, <laughs> a snake, and uh, and a piranha. That's, That's right. Great. And um, it's sort of like Ocean's Eleven combined with. Pulp Fiction, uh, combined with uh, fairy tales, and um, it Perfect. and simply put, the story is, uh, what if the bad guys, in order to survive, had to be try to become good guys, mm. 
Yeah. Um, and that's that's sort of what the story is. And, and that's, that's all not... on the record, right? We can have that in yeah. the podcast. Okay. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's coming out uh, as of right now. It's supposed to be coming out um, in the springtime of 2022. Nice. So we'll be working right. on that all this this upcoming year. So, hey guys, you both honestly, I mean this genuinely. You're both lovely people, and I feel like you're very good at articulating your stances. And I would love to now that you've like we've had a conversation and we ran down our time of three hours. I would <laughs> love to do this again. You guys know what you want to talk about. I want to touch on even more South Park, even more Disney. I want to talk about like what movies mean to us and like why we are working in in an industry that is almost set against us in terms of odds and stigma. Mm -hmm. And we'll touch on that. And maybe within the next couple of months, we can reschedule something to do that. Sure. That's great. Um, And again, we'll do it shorter because I think it's not efficient to do three hour sessions. (laughs) That's the first meet. But I don't envy you guys having to edit this later. I'm really sorry about that. We love it. We actually love it because it, we get to listen to something that we find interesting. That's why we do it. It's oftentimes Ryan, mostly just Ryan, it's not myself. <laughs> we get to listen, we get to talk to people who truly have a down earth approach to talking about what they love doing. And editing it is rather fun because we get a lot of insight from it. And you guys are so relatable fun and i want to know more about you guys and get into the quirks of who you are and mm-hmm. we can do that on a follow-up if you're down i don't know if you're down yeah, that sounds great but mm-hmm. thank you so much i mean it means so much that you guys took the time um to on your sunday and your day off to spend time with us and talk about what you've been up to lately and it means a lot so we really thank you for calling it was yeah, yeah thanks for having us. conversation i really appreciate it so yeah, we will definitely do this again. This has been for now AVHD podcast on Spotify and YouTube without video. And for now, we're gonna thinking about coming up with a new name. And Ryan and I are shuffling different ideas in our minds, and we might come up with something creative. Otherwise, AVHD is here to stay. Um, for now, we will keep you posted on our Twitters and our Instagrams as things continue to post. And thank you so much, David and Jessica. I hope you have a wonderful. Um, holiday season here in the mix of December 2020. You too. You too. Thank Happy you. New Year. Yeah. <laughs> Stay Happy safe year. and have a good holiday. Yeah. Yeah. And good luck moving. Yeah. Oh yeah. Thank you so much. I'm already here. Ryan's coming here. Um, Austin, Texas is great. You guys ever come to Austin, by the way? Now that we're, I mean, we can. Oh, yeah. 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 I would love to. Would love to come down and see you. You guys are, dude. Let us know. I so like, I we might be doing like a two a two bedroom or merge. Like, I live in a building downtown mm-hmm. and they have crazy deals right now because of COVID. I'm like, Ryan, oh. we can upgrade to a two bedroom or you get a one bedroom across the hall. Um, if you guys are ever in town, let us know, man. This town is awesome. Um, oh, I want to go. We're, we're on 6th Street, right um, downtown. It's fantastic. <laughs> anyway, thank you guys so much. It means a lot, seriously, during these schedules for you guys to come on and talk to us about things. So. Great. I would love to do another show where we can kind of pick your brain about some more personal stuff as far as what makes you guys tick goes, if you're down to do that. And it can be sure. a lot shorter and we can plan it out more strategically. So Sounds good. Great. Awesome. All right. Thank you, guys. It was, so nice. it was so nice, it was to, so nice to meet yeah. you. Thank Likewise. you. Thank you, You guys you, are Marissa. lovely. You guys are fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. You guys got it going on. Appreciate yeah. Go Cincy. Yeah, go Cincy. Go Cincy. Go Bearcats, baby. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All the way. All the way, baby. This year. This is the year. <laughs> I hope. <laughs>
right, guys. Have, have a good Sunday night. It was yeah. a, have a good Sunday. Okay. Yeah. See ya. Bye.